0: Rippy Writes with Brian Scott Rippey. Transcript can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have.
1: What's up on a Monday? I am Brian Scott Rippy. This is the Rippy Writes podcast. Appreciate you joining us today. Hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving weekend and that everyone made it back home in one piece. We've got a packed Monday show for you. Weldon back in his normal spot after ba- uh, back from... Thanksgiving, a family reunion, and LSU AM. and m So, big weekend for Weldon. We got into some Ole Miss-Mississippi State stuff in terms of the game itself, but more so big picture, end of the season stuff. Looked at some of Ole Miss's final statistics, got into Matt Corral, different things like that, and then took a look at what is sure to be and is already a crazy coaching carousel, some thoughts on Lincoln-Riley-USC, where LSU goes from here, Napier to Florida, and how those two hires, that being Napier to Florida and whomever LSU hires, uh, will kind of fairly or unfairly always kind of be linked together so a lot of a lot of football stuff today a lot of silly season and a look back on a memorable 10-2 and two season for the Ole Miss Rebels so um great conversation oh and of course soccer corner at the end how could I forget soccer corner just exploding from from coast to coast sea to sea we uh I, I look up every single every single time I open Twitter now and I've got some sort of uh fan argument between uh Chelsea United whomever whatever the great rivalries are in uh the EPL going on in my mention so uh Congrats to us for bringing soccer to America. Before we get to that I want to remind you the podcast brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, Glad you asked. They're the world's best gambling handicapping website, the inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. Need to check these guys out there. The real deal, they're going to have a picks package to fit your price range. There's no one hotter than Skybox on the NFL right now. Came off a winning week in college last week. I'll, uh, I'll have some numbers from this past weekend by the Wednesday podcast, but you shouldn't wait to try these guys out. They're giving out free plays in college basketball every day. That is skyboxsportspicks.com slash free plays. You get a daily free play for the people every day just courtesy of Skybox because basketball is what they crush the most. It's by far their best uh, model. That is their words, not mine. Check them out. skyboxsportspicks.com. Make some money uh, before the holiday season and uh, buy your Christmas present with some winners via Skybox. Use the promo code RIPPY. You get 20% off. Let them know we sent you. Podcast also brought to you by LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. Go see Greg if you're a subscriber. Rippy Wright subscriber, that's rippywrights.substack.com, you get a 16 ounce prime strip for 20 bucks and a $5 pack of sausage. That's a hell of a way to kickstart your grilling weekend. Got some good football on this coming weekend, uh, conference championship weekend. You need to go check out LBs, throw something on the grill and enjoy the action. They got all kinds of great seafood, sausages, crab stuff, mushrooms, all kinds of great stuff. You need to check them out. LBs, University Avenue across from Kroger. Greg wants to make your grilling experience great. Oxford is so lucky to have LB's. It is delicious. I know most of you out there know exactly what I'm talking about at this point. Go see him again and uh, let this coming weekend be uh, something awesome on the grill. Check him out. LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. Finally, the podcast brought to you by Manscaped, as is all MPW digital podcasts are. Manscaped is the leader in men's grooming. They offer precision tools for your jewels. They're here to make me time in the bathroom, your favorite time in the bathroom, and make sure you're nice and groomed and kemped down there. They're the industry leader in men's grooming, lawnmower 4.0 model, got a nice little LED light on that thing, portable charger, heard the 70s were a wild times. Manscaped is here to make sure that that is a bygone era. You need to check them out. Make sure everything's all neat and tidy down there. Join the over 2 million men who trust Manscaped. Use the promo code MPW to get 20% off any purchase at manscaped.com. All right. Here is Weldon. Great conversation. Buckle up. All right. We now welcome on former Ole Miss recruiting specialist, Weldon Rodenberg here for our season finale podcast. It's not the, I guess, last podcast of the season, but Ole Miss wins 31-21 over Mississippi State to capture its first 10 and 10-2 season, or excuse me, 10-win regular season in program history. We'll get into some of that. I know I had a pod drop the day after Thanksgiving with Chase where we talked for about an hour. We'll probably do some more big picture season stuff and then get in, uh, get into what has been a pretty wild coaching carousel. To give you a little inside baseball, Weldon and I have both returned from our respective Thanksgiving weekends. As we start hit the record button at nine o'clock, nine fifteen at night on Sunday night, we uh, I, this was not the intention, but for whatever reason, trying to get back in the state of Texas today was just an abject disaster. I think we both had already fairly long drives added at least a couple hours on by traffic. It was two for me, so we are winging it. This will be a uh, certainly a uh, bullshitting-themed episode, as all are in some capacity, but there are no notes for this one. How are you, my friend? You made it in one piece. I did. I did.
0: I mean, I I spent Thanksgiving in, in Fairhope, Alabama. I saw some people on the board commenting on that. Then went back to Baton Rouge, went to the LSU A&M game last night, and then left kind of midday today. And, you know, getting back to Houston – on that I 10 is always a pain in the ass, but today was today was a special
1: pain in the ass. But uh we're here, so let's make do. <laughs> Same deal on I-20, dude. The last two hours, pretty much from the time I got to Texas, and really actually from Shreveport on, it was just every five minutes there was another traffic jam that added like half an hour. Like it was almost kind of weirdly, weirdly, uh perfectly timed. It was like literally 10-minute intervals, another 30-minute jam. It was bizarre, but glad we made it. We got a lot to cover. Let's rewind first and go to the Egg Bowl. Ole Miss wins 31-21. Chase and I kind of hit the minutiae of it in some big-picture stuff. I'll just open it up to you. What was your overall thought about this game and kind of this season as a whole as it's kind of turned out to be?
0: Yeah, I mean, we were talking a lot during that game, um, and I just really did not like the way it started. Uh, the defense is on the field so long. Especially in the first half, but just never really gave up a touchdown, never gave up a big play. And, you know, we talked before the game about how that was like gonna be the key is just tackling, keep everything in front of you and get pressure on Rodgers. And they really did that for four quarters. And if it wasn't for like a pretty ill timed Matt Corral interception, that game, I mean, the game was really over anyway. But uh, it kind of made you a little squeamish, you know, typical, in typical Ole Miss fashion. You know, it's never over <laughs> until it's actually over. And I, I tried to explain that to my friends and family that were watching it with me. Uh, but it was a great win. I mean, it was pretty decisive, pretty dominant on kind of every single front. Um, and I didn't expect it, but kind of throughout the game I just kept realizing and I was just telling myself in my head that the better team was winning this game the whole time. And it wasn't that surprising. I mean, Ole Miss was a better team than Mississippi State really the entire year. And State has been on a run, and they they've played well, and Rodgers has been great. But they weren't better than Ole Miss, and it was going to take a weird egg bully game for them to beat them, and that just did not happen.
1: Yeah, you're dead on with that. And as bad as I was kind of with you, I was like, this is not looking very great for really about a quarter and a half there. But one of the things that made me a little more optimistic about their chances was you could see a couple of things early on in the game. One Ole Miss obviously had the, I guess you could call it a four and out turnover on downs, but they didn't get the first down. They get stuffed on the short run play to start the game. But on that drive that they held Mississippi state to a field goal on the third down, you had a Lashley false start. Then Sam Williams just kind of bulldozed over him and he had to hold to prevent a sack after, excuse me, it looked like he had gotten away with the second false start on that play. And so there were there were signs early on in the game. I thought it took about a quarter, three, three-ish drives for the Ole Miss defensive line to sort of impose its will a bit. It didn't seem like they were really getting close to getting home early in the game, but it was a weird mix of State doing some quick-hitting stuff. Rogers didn't have, like, all day, all day. We were like, where in the hell are they going to, like, find pressure in this game? But Ole Miss wasn't exactly imposing its will – and then as the game kind of went onward, you got about late in that second quarter. That's when you started to see that Mississippi State was having trouble blocking Ole Miss, particularly Sam Williams. And the game really turned from there. Um, I mean, I, I don't know about you. When that got up to 17-6, to six, when Ole Miss gets the stop and they score after halftime, I didn't think it was over by any means. As you just outlined, it's never over when it's over to Ole Miss. But with the way that game had turned and the way Ole Miss was playing defensively, particularly up front, when it got to 17-6, I was like, shit, this is a really really tall hill for state to climb. Like, Ole miss is really in great shape here.
0: Exactly. I mean, they were just confusing Rodgers the entire night. Whether it's hard to see obviously from the TV view, but coverages when they were bringing a little bit of pressure, kind of what they were doing on, you know, play in, play out, which is a credit to DJ and that crew. They Rodgers and them just never seemed comfortable in offense. And uh defensively, I mean, State looked fine. Ole Miss just made really important plays when they needed to, and uh, for the first game in a little while, they uh, really had success in the red zone, which is obviously something they've struggled with. But Snoop was just running
1: mm-hmm.
0: maybe his best game of the whole year, maybe not stats-wise, but just, you know, this offense is always about running the ball efficiently, and they, I did notice they put him in there a lot of different little short yardage uh, positions what they haven't done the entire season and it worked perfectly um so they just made plays when they had to and state my my god definitely did not make plays when they needed to
1: that's really what it came down to. You're you're right with the Snoop Connor part of it too. It's like it's like Kiffin like teased the fans a bit. He goes with the Ely on the fourth and short to open the game just to kind of like look like just give everyone a heart attack one last time. And then really from there on out was very consistent with having Snoop Connor in the game for most short-yarded situations. And I think that helped in the red zone. I also don't think it's a coincidence that old miss, you know, when they had they had more success in the red zone, as you mentioned, that also coincided with the Matt Corral touchdown, a running touchdown. And I don't think that's necessarily a total coincidence because while he didn't have like a Tennessee like game, he did carry the ball 12 times for 45 yards. I don't remember if he got sacked or how many times, but it doesn't really matter when he has, you know, double digit runs. That means he's, you know, probably had some sort of impact on the game running the football and he did. And it wasn't Ole Miss's prettiest night running. I think they ended up with, 154 yards on 44 carries. That's three and a half yards of rush. But you're sitting there thinking, well, that doesn't sound great. But they ran three touchdowns. So Corral had the one Snoop had two. They were just efficient enough running the football, I thought. And then as you mentioned, they just made some really timely plays. There were a couple of huge third down conversions that kept it Kept not only kept Ole Miss didn't get points off of all of them, but they kept the quick three and out to get State back on the field very quickly. Maybe catch the Ole Miss defense a little winded, and uh, having State's offense kind of get into some rhythm. I thought there were some crucial ones there. I think State got outgained Ole Miss, if I'm not mistaken on that. I think it was like 370 something to 420. Excuse me, 388 for Ole Miss, 420 for Mississippi State, but. And the difference in the game too was third down. Ole Miss was 11 of 18 and state was four of 14. And so you look at this from a numbers wise, it tells two stories to me. This was kind of what Ole Miss looked like when they were functioning at, you know, optimal capacity, um, you know, early on in the year, you had a big game from Drummond. Corral was a factor in the running game and they lost, they won the turn. No, excuse me. They lost the turnover battle, but everything else went to script. And then State is kind of the king of hollow yardage, where Ole Miss gave up 420 yards of offense, but when that game was still in doubt and they were playing real real defense, I think it was right around the 300-yard mark. So, classic – it was a classic kind of air raidish game where it's like, oh, 420 yards, but that wasn't really the case at all.
0: No, I mean, State always outgames their opponents, it feels like. You know, it's just all – you don't want to see totally hollow yardage, but it's not, you know, game impact plays. You know, they have to make the plays – um, in the red zone and short area to, to really win and take control and you know you saw like when they get to Auburn they do it they will they will blow your ass out but um, they weren't able to do that and even though Ole Miss didn't run the ball overly efficiently you know they had all those those orbit motions with with Drummond getting him outside and those are basically run plays right and clearly Levy saw something on film where he that Ole Miss had the advantage blocking their corners and safeties in the outside because they ran that all night long and not once really maybe i think braylon had a terrible block on one play besides that those were positive yardage plays every single time and that was i mean these guys game plan as well as anyone in the country and it was pretty clear that they knew exactly what they needed to do all it was just a matter of execution and they they did that for the first time it felt like in quite a while
1: it was kind of a double-edged sword from a per preparation standpoint the air raid seems like it would be a pretty difficult offense to prepare for on short notice, which would make you almost, I can't guarantee this, no one I would ask would even answer, even if I did bother to ask, and I don't care enough to ask, but you had to think there was a decent bit of air raid Mississippi State prep during Vanderbilt week, because that seems like a very tough offense to prepare for on short, on a short week. But at the same time with both teams having a short week and I get, I know there was preparation definitely on both sides. I mean, you don't have to prepare for Tennessee state really like in, from terms of schematic standpoint or whoever it was, they played the week before. If you're talking Mm -hmm. short week though, I would take Kiffin and Lebby over almost anyone, but certainly over Leach and name whoever, whomever else it is whether that's Leach and Arnett or whatever over just about anyone. And I thought Ole Miss was the better prepared team from a schematic standpoint, like you mentioned, what's up with Drummond. So, I don't think he's fully healthy. I think that hamstring is probably still nagging at him a little bit. But my man runs. It's it's not that he's overly slow. He's not a burner by any means when we covered. But on that one long run down the sideline, it may have even gotten called back by a hold. I can't remember. The guy looked like he was just jogging, finishing up a 5K. I know he's moving a lot faster than that, but that's just like an optical illusion. Did you notice that at all? Like it doesn't, even when he's going fast, it doesn't look fast. And I don't understand why.
0: Yeah, he's kind of a smooth glider as a runner, and, like, that's kind of a running style you'll see on film. Like, mm-hmm. some guys just kind of glide. Some guys it looks like they're working real hard to get where they need to go. Um, on that particular play, it looked like he kind of he got the edge and was going down there, going downhill, saw two guys in front of him, and then kind of saw Mingo on his left and kind of just went – just kind of sat right behind him and walked for about ten yards, um, which, you know – He got what he needed to get. I think he kind of knows he's not going to Percy Harvin outrun these guys necessarily. So he's a he's a smart runner trying not to get hit, probably not 100 percent healthy. So saw a blocker kind of just got behind him in open space and grabbed an extra few yards. But it definitely looks a little unorthodox at times.
1: And you were right about the interception to where it's like Ole Miss, like I was sitting there thinking, can they get this shit to 38 to six, if I'm being completely honest, and like make this score look really lopsided, and the pick was the only thing that, that to me, the pick that Jet Johnson had where Crowd just kind of made a mistake, I think he should have thrown it to whoever was to the left of who he threw it to, like it looked like two guys in kind of a similar-ish area, or similar path, or similar route, and he threw it to the wrong one. But that, to me, I was like, okay, they're still winning this game, but that kind of spoiled the chance for them to really kind of rub state's nose in it a little bit. So huge win, 10-2, first 10-win regular season in history. It's, it's interesting when you look at it because you can look at this from a number of different angles. I wrote about Matt Corral on Friday for a column, rebelgrove.com. Well, you know, in a way, none, in a largely none of this happens without Matt Corral. But as you look back on this ten and two season, Ole Miss Kiffin loves tweeting that they're undefeated in forty nine states. How do you view this as kind of? I mean, do you view this as a stepping stone, or do you think it's a peak? I hate to do to the. Do you think he's peaked at Ole Miss coming up next on you know undisputed or whatever? But sure. how do you kind of view this season, um, whether that's a short or a long term lens? Like, what, what? It's certainly surprising. I didn't have them necessarily at ten and two, but at the same time, no game was a complete stunner. Maybe outside A and M, it's weird. Yeah, it is weird. I'm actually kind of happy that
0: Alabama finished the job against LSU, Arkansas, and Auburn because if it had gone down and been a tie for the the West or a situation where Ole Miss could have just won it outright, but they didn't because of injuries, that would have been a kind of a tough pill to swallow. But the way it turned out, I mean, as crazy as it is, this season is the exact same if they beat Auburn or if they don't beat Auburn because they're not making the playoff at 11 and one without going to the SC West championship. Um, if anything, their bowl situation hasn't changed.
1: <laughs> you know, right. they're
0: they're eight or seven in the ranking right now. They may be six. So I, I think they, you know, all, all things considered, it was a really, really successful season. And I the best, the best way to put it would be just taking advantage fully of a generational quarterback talent. Um, not everybody does it. I mean, You know, I don't think Sam Howell is as good as Corral or anything like that, but North Carolina hasn't had a quarterback like him in who knows how long. And for the two seasons he was there and the starter didn't do anything with it. And you see teams do it all the time where they have this great quarterback and it just kind of doesn't work out. Uh, Manziel and Texas A&M, I mean, those teams did nothing of importance the years he was there. Um, And Ole Miss this year, has Matt Corral is the best quarterback in the country, and they went ten and two in a really tough SEC West. And I I don't think it's a peak. Um, does that mean the next year the only positive outcome is eleven and one? No, that's not the case. Um, but I think it's a really big stepping stone, and obviously we'll have to get into coaching search stuff. But who the hell knows who's going to be at Ole Miss next year? head coach included, you know, you don't know. Um, so at this point, it's just, it's hard to kind of just kind of be happy about it. Uh, that's all you really can be. Be excited about it. You know, look forward to the, the fun that will be, you know, recruiting and transfer portal because that's what's coming up next. And then I'll kind of look forward to see what happens next season. But I would call it a really, really big success
1: and a, a really nice piece to continue to build on. Can you imagine to your point about, you know, it probably turning out the same, whether they beat Auburn or they don't beat Auburn. I think they, if they had beaten Auburn, they would have been in much better position to have an outside shot at the playoff. If chaos happened next week, they could root for chaos and backdoor their way into where it's not necessarily a possibility now, but I think I'm kind of with you. I don't think they're getting in the playoff at 11 one, just on no. paper if everything holds its chalk. But can you, if, I, if Auburn, if Ole Miss had beaten Auburn and that iron bowl, had been determined whether Ole Miss had won the West or not, like actually won the West, that would almost have been worse. It would have put like a weird damper on the year for just the absolute, you know, just clown show that that game turned into to where, you know, Alabama has to go 98 yards with no timeouts to force overtime. And then it goes into the whole two-point conversion deal. I just, as an Ole Miss fan, like I imagine that, you know, most Ole Miss fans have more scar tissue you know, than most fan bases out there, I think probably every fan base would tell you that, but I think Ole Miss fans would probably tell you that they could attest to that a little more, whether it's the fourth and 25 or whatever. I feel like that Iron Bowl watching it and getting sucked into a game that you figured Alabama was going to steamroll in, if that had like, determined their fate for the West, that would have just been a nice kick in the nuts to end an already pretty good year.
0: That's exactly what I'm saying. Like, I'm yeah, of an awful If that had been the case, and I had to watch Brian Harson be the biggest pussy in America and punt the ball with basically you get five yards, you win the football game. And as an Ole Miss fan, have to watch him, you know, punt it back to Bryce Young there. I, I would have lost my mind. And I'm, you know, maybe that would have been a better situation. <laughs> Technically, but I'm, I'm not complaining about the situation that Ole Miss fans would have been in because that would have been hell. And I, I'm, I think it's
1: pretty nice to be where we're at. And scored a touchdown all game, and they go 98 yards and no timeouts. That would have been the most, like, perfect Ole Miss thing of all time. But I think you're uh-huh. right. They did take advantage of Corral. There's a lot of places that don't do that. You know, you could argue, and forgive me for some of the older people listening to this podcast. We're not age-shaming here. I just mean I was 9, 10 years old when Eli Manning was around you could argue Ole Miss didn't fully capitalize on kind of a generational Eli Manning. They had the good 10 and two, 10 and three year, his senior year where they go to the cotton bowl It was the first time they'd been in a game, January one bowl game. And I don't know. I can't remember. I'm about to, I'm about to date myself anyway. Uh, But I guess you could make that argument. They didn't fully capitalize on the whole Eli Manning thing. And some of that had to do with kind of the day and age of college football, the talent around them, but you're right. They made good on the season. There were, I mean, it's a memorable season with a lot of memorable moments. People are going to remember the AM game and the way the defense played that night. People are going to remember Matt Corral's 30-carry game and willing them to a win in Tennessee, and they're sure as hell going to remember this Egg Bowl. And, you know, you kind of have one more chapter. As much as people will say the bowl games are meaningless and they're watered down, and we've talked about this before, in the grand scheme of things, in terms of the consequence of the season and the sport, they're not. But, my God, how many Ole Miss fans have Sugar Bowl memorabilia hanging on their walls right now. Most of you listening to this show probably do. They're going to get to author some sort of other chapter that, particularly if they win the game, whether that's Peach, Fiesta, maybe they end up in the Sugar. We can get to that in a minute. But, like, this will be a memorable year. And so I think you're right. They made good on it. And, you know, there's a lot of moments in this year that uh, that people will remember. And one of the things that I missed about, this wasn't even necessarily a Mississippi State-centric thought, but what's fascinating was, Ole Miss won that A&M game long before the two interceptions. I mean, it wasn't completely over, but they had built up a nice lead and they had really sort of demoralized A&M at the line of scrimmage even before the Ashanti Sistrunk pick and the A.J. Finley pick six to cap the game. They They put together another fantastic defensive performance on Thursday night without registering a turnover. And that may be one of the most surprising elements when you look back at this 2021 season what was most shocked me the most about it, it might be where the defense was against Arkansas and where they ended the year to where they really established an identity of a team that's really physical and going to kind of push you around a little bit. The line of scrimmage, they have a real pass rush. They won two huge games to where they didn't force a turnover against State. And like I just mentioned in Outline, don't get me wrong, the two turnovers against AM factored in, but they were already winning that game had already pitched a pretty good ball game, to use a baseball term, as a defense before the turnovers. That may be the most shocking aspect of it was the physical identity they developed as a defense. I didn't see that this year. No, I mean
0: that was the biggest question, kind of going into the season. You you knew this offense was going to be really good, and at some points it actually wasn't really good, um, but it was always relatively efficient. Um, but we were always asking, you know. How good is the defense going to be, or how much better is the defense going to be? Is it going to be, you know, going from 128, literally the worst defense of a power five team, maybe even a group of five teams? Is it going to be top 100? Is it going to be top 50? And you can kind of just pick and choose your ending record by how good it was. And I don't know what the final tally of that was, but it was exactly what it needed to be for them to win 10 games. Uh, I mean, they were holding guys under 28, and we talked about if this defense holds anybody under 28, they're going to win the game. And for every single game kind of down the stretch, with the weird exception of Auburn, um, which kind of had a lot more outside factors besides the defense, they did that, and Ole Miss won the game. Uh, It was just really, really impressive, and I think it shows – maybe it's, you know, biting the hand that feeds you, but I think it shows why Kiffin and them are going to be so heavy on the portal because of what happened this year, you know, and that can come back to bite you if it doesn't work out like it did this year, but they see that, you know, you can fill holes and bring in impact players that you just can better evaluate and can help your team win. And I think that's what they're going to do. And this year prove that if you do that correctly, you can win really, really big.
1: Yep. I, I, I don't have a ton to add to that. I, I I agree. That's exactly the same way I view it. You mentioned the Arkansas game as a turning point. Just for the sake of kind of the statistic, Ole Miss gives up 26 at Tennessee, but anyone who watched that game knows they won that game largely because of what Matt Corral did in the defense. If state doesn't get that last garbage time touchdown, they hold their opponents to 20 points or fewer in each of the final six games of the season. The only time they allowed more than 20 points was the last touchdown they gave up to state last night, which is just remarkable to think about given where this defense was, how they looked after Arkansas we We're like, Oh, Holy hell. They carried the team for the last month. You know, I thought Thursday night's game was a bit more of a balancing act where you could say, you know, the, op- the offense was a lot better in the red zone. They made n- more than enough plays to win this game. And the defense was good on p- top of it. Whereas before that, the defense really kind of carried this football team for five weeks a month. And it was, it was something that I didn't have uh, certainly not in the cards this year, I threw this galaxy bring takeout at Chase on Friday show. I'll throw it to you as well. I don't think. I think Kiffin's at Ole Miss next year. Gun to my head, I would imagine. Just the way the coaching carousel is shaking out. Look, crazier things have happened. Don't get me wrong. I think he's back. If, but for the sake of the conversation here, there was a lot of talk of, well, if Kiffin leaves, how many phone calls would they make before? you know, they gave the job to Levy or gave him an opportunity to be the head coach. I don't know. That's not really the point, but not once was it mentioned. What if they, how many phone calls did they make and potentially look at DJ Durkin? And I know there's a lot more factors that went into it, but he is a guy with power five head coaching experience. I understand what happened at Maryland. I, I get it. You probably have to kind of have your ducks in a row in terms of how you're going to address that. Should, if, that was something they wanted to do this is completely hypothetical by the way this is not anything that i've heard or talked to or was ever a scenario i was mostly just shocked that that was never a conversation because that defense got better as the year went on you can make an argument they have less talent than the offense does even if you want to take out corral you look at the other 10 positions it's close um close ish like it's not as lopsided as you might think I'm just curious why that's never been a topic of conversation because that was a guy before the Maryland thing happened that was sort of kind of a rising star in the industry. I get there's more factors at play, but just the fact that it wasn't a thought kind of uh, surprised me.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's a valid point. Um, I think there are a few kind of factors that aren't really factors that kind of pay, play into that. One is that Ole Miss has kind of built its reputation on offense – from the Hugh Freeze era to, till now, um, which is kind of why people, got, I guess, got really frustrated with the Matt Luke era because there wasn't a
1: whole lot of it. Hell, even um, Nut, too, before right before Freeze, I know it ended shitty, but he's a he's wild. I mean, how many times after you used to not say wild rebel when he showed up at Ole Miss? Sure, I mean, my you
0: know, my uh, my Ole Miss history is, right. is low before Freeze, but yes, I get what you're saying. Um, and I think the second factor is. We can talk about the Maryland stuff. Um, but you, you can't ignore it. Right. And right. I'm not saying DJ, look, I, I've been in the office with DJ, truly one of the nicest people you will ever meet. And that is an event that he is going to have to carry around with him for his entire life. Um, and unfortunately, in this business where being kind of it, it would be tough. I do, I do kind of have a feeling that DJ's head coaching days are over after that and the background of that stuff I'm not fully clear on Um, but the fact is a player died on his watch Um, hiring someone like that I mean people didn't make a big deal of it when he was hired at Ole Miss but it was brought up here and there Um, I think it has turned out to be a good decision Uh, I think that people deserve second chances he has taken full advantage of it. He is a great person who was caught up in a mess that may or may not have been even directly his fault. I just – it would be really, really, really tough to, to make him the head coach. And I think that's kind of the ultimate kind of trump card to the successes that he's had at Ole Miss, at Maryland before that happened, defensive coordinator at Florida. I mean, he is he has been very, very good wherever he has been. Um this is an industry where it is about the players and having that happen to a player as you know, you're the head of it. it, It's tough to get past. And I think everything you've said and every point you made is completely valid. Like why hasn't it been brought up? Um, It makes sense. It's like, you know, why are we just assuming it's Levy? This guy's done a great job. I really do think that plays into a huge factor um, fair or not.
1: I think you're exactly right. That's, I think it's well said. And I like, don't confuse me as this people I'm talking to the listener here as me advocating for this or thinking no, no, that no. they should do it. That know. were a contingency plan. I was just uh, more fascinated that the like that had never really been brought up as a thought. I think right. you're right. And look, I actually read that full. I forget that whoever they hired to do the investigation. I read that full report uh, over about a day and a half. Uh, I think it was actually after he hi- he got hired at Ole Miss and there's so many different factors at play with that. I would say in a very, very, very simplistic way to put it is that he was loyal and trustworthy to a fault to that strength coach to where he was either maybe willfully blind to some things or just fiercely loyal and kind of went down with the ship with it. I'm not, there's so much more to that. I would just That's a one-sentence, 10,000-foot view of it. Not really the right. point, but I just thought it was interesting that the thought had never been – even kind of discovered or brought up one of the things that you mentioned about, you know, being in a room with them and being a, you know, him being a nice guy, What shocked me. There's, I'm sure I've told this story before on the podcast, when most coach previous coaching staffs came through, we would have like a, particularly with the Luke staff each year, we'd have like a, not a mixer, but like a happy hour type deal, like right before the season started where it was like media and the coaching staff, I remember having a beer with Rich Rod and talking about Pat McAfee for about 20 minutes. Like it was mostly informal type stuff. Uh, Matt Luke actually told me his thoughts on Will Hall. I won't get into all of that. Not that it matters anymore, but <laughs> oh, fascinating boy. at the time, just very like nonchalant as I'm drinking a Miller light or Coors light at this place above the square. But point being, Kiffin didn't do that different cat. I get it. I didn't actually, I just kind of assumed that wouldn't happen from the get go based on the things I heard about him, but we had one off the record meeting with Levy, Durkin, and Kiffin, and it was in the IPF, and it was over lunch, and it was in, like, a conference room, and it's we thought we were going to, like, eat lunch with them. They ended up coming up after we had already eaten and basically took questions for, off-the-record questions for, I would guess, 35 minutes to an hour, somewhere in that window. I don't remember exactly, but one of the things I took away from it was I didn't know much about DJ Durkin. I hadn't listened to him talk very much. Before that, I watched some Maryland press conference interviews, he was by far the most charismatic out of the three, and it wasn't close. Like when he, something about him when he talks, he has this aura that you're like, this guy could be selling me a complete crock of shit, and I'd probably nod my head. Like he, he's very, very charismatic. He's funny. He seemed like he was pretty quick witted, but he's also very nice. Like in the short time, I don't pretend to know him or him remember or know who I am. Like don't confuse it with that. But there was a charisma to him that was almost sort of jarring and disarming at the same time if that makes any sense
0: yeah i mean that that's just kind of the way he is he you know he's incredibly intelligent he is uh incredibly well spoken which is o- a really overused term but i think i know it's true know, with I him to say that but it is true with him um he's genuine he's just incredibly uh he was a great coach to work for and obviously i was on the offensive side of the ball a lot so a lot of our you know, run-ins and conversation was like, hadn't really nothing to do with football. It was just talking just, you know, about whatever was going on. Sure. And he's yeah. always willing to give you the time of day, which for some coaches is like not a thing at all, especially some of that I've worked with in past staffs and the ones that were uh, on Kiffin's staff last year. He is a great guy. And it, it it's kind of interesting because from a fan's view, you hear stories about coaches. And I guess the Maryland one, it would be one. And you automatically make up your mindset of what this guy is like. And that's with any kind of coach in any sort of setting. I mean, I'm sure Bobby Petrino, I mean, that's a crazy story out there. He could be the nicest guy in the world. I have no idea. Sure. Doesn't seem like it, but he could be. Um, And then when I was, you know, when DJ was coming in, I was like, I don't know what to expect of this guy. Like, is he going to be a hard ass or what's going on? And it just couldn't have been more the opposite direction. And, the players love him because, you know, he's tough. He doesn't, you know, he's not just sitting there, you know, on the sidelines, he's smiling and you see him all the time. But he'll get at your ass if you're if you're not doing what you need to do. And the players respect that. And uh, he's a great guy. Really, really good guy. I hope he gets a chance. I just don't see it at Ole this
1: One small Petrino anecdote. I was a, he, by my one experience with him, not a nice guy. Yeah. (laughs) I I said, I I uh, said
0: he could be, but I wouldn't necessarily. (laughs) No, no,
1: I know. I know. I know. I'll confirm your, uh, your, your question there about whether he's a nice guy or not. I was probably 12 or 13 years old. My freshman year roommate, who's was a good friend of mine from high school. His dad used to be the salary cap guy for the Atlanta Falcons and obviously not anymore. He moved to Jackson not really the point, but he had connections with the Atlanta Falcons. And so we went down for a Falcons Saints game when I was really young. And it was when Petrino was with the Falcons. I think, I want to say Byron Leftwich was his quarterback. It was right after the Vic fiasco. The Falcons were terrible. We're at the team hotel. And my grandfather is a Louisville alum. And, like, a it was a diehard Louisville Cardinals fan. And so I was like, this would be cool if I could get Petrino's autograph just to give it to my granddad. I thought that would be a cool thing to do. Um, you know, probably one of the more selfless acts between grandson and grandfather of the last decade, but that's neither here nor there. I won't ever pat myself on the back. I'm the only one in this hotel, hotel lobby at the Falcons are coming in. It's me, my buddy and his dad. And I like try to get his autograph. And he was like, can I get you later when it's not as crowded? We are the only people in this lobby and then walks upstairs and just like waves as the elevator shuts. And that was my one Bobby Petrino interaction. So, um, chalk me up in the uh Bobby Petrino is a dick camp. Anyway, not the point. That's we uh but yeah, I don't know. Durkin's done a hell of a job. I was that was a long-winded way and kind of beating around the bush to what a turnaround. Um, you know, really from the Arkansas game on. I mean, you had that stupid internet rumor that sort of kind of made it mainstream where it's like, look, Durkin's nameplate's off his uh off his door. It's like that's not how this works. This is not NFL no. training camp. Come get your playbook, your nameplates out the door. But man, what a turnaround. And kind of the last thought I'll offer before we move on to something else. I don't mean this for this to sound perverse at all, but the situation in Maryland is what it is. It's a terrible situation all around. But I'm not even talking about that. How he's viewed, as you mentioned, in the coaching industry and how he's perceived because of that happening, I wonder if that could shirk off otherwise attention for him potentially getting other opportunities, whether that's a D coordinator somewhere else or a job, and kind of establish a little bit of you know, for whatever version of longevity you can have at coordinators, I guess Brent Venables would be the, you know, outlier to this. I wonder if he could stick around for four or five years and sort of kind of build something on the defensive side of the football. To me, with the offensive mind that Kiffin is, I don't think Levy's necessarily long for this world at Ole Miss by any means. Um, I just wonder if that's something that they could kind of stick with and he could stick around for a bit. And that would be, to me, if it continues in this direction, a gigantic asset for however long Kiffin's there.
0: Oh, I completely agree. And you know, I think Kiffin really respects the job he's done. I think there was obviously issues last year. The defense was not very good. There's no way around it. Um, but he trusts DJ, he trusts Partridge and knew that they had to get some guys. You know, there were some personnel issues as well, but no really excuse for the the product that came out of there. Um, and I think as we're learning with all this coaching staff, coaching change stuff maybe sometimes it's good to just trust your guys a little bit more instead of just have them as the sacrificial lambs. Um, I think Michigan clearly is a prime example of that right now. Um, do I think DJ is going to be here for four or five years? No, because that's just not how things work these, these days. But if he's here for two more years and can kind of establish an identity of what they do on defense, um, I think that's a huge asset to any program. You see what's done with Clemson. You see what, you know, before Lincoln was with Stoops, I mean, with the head coach, he was the OC under Stoops. Just kind of having that continuity uh, is, is just ginormous. Aranda with LSU and before that, Wisconsin. I mean, these long-established assistant coaches really help build a program. And, you know, it's not fair to keep them there or try to keep them there. You want them to have success. But at the same time, some of these guys just – you know, they want to be coordinators or they think they that's their best opportunity to stay in the, in the job. And, you know, DJ, obviously that situation will be around him for the rest of his coaching career. And maybe for him, this is a great place to be and he'll stay or maybe he's gone this year and he's going to go with someone else. No one ever knows. But uh, I do think it would be huge if he stayed a little while and built kind of a an established presence uh, with this defense.
1: Yeah, it's an advantage because if nothing else, it's the rarity. No one else really has it. Like, it's so hard to find because you move around. I think the hardball in Michigan example is a decent example because, I mean, with the way stuff's going, we'll get in the coaching stuff search in a minute. Like, how many how many other ADs in the similar position would have already canned hardball where they kind of stuck by the guy and it's finally paid off for them? I don't think there's a – like, there's a lot of, I've put it this way. There's a lot of other places where Hall may not have lasted this long. We talked about it on last week or the week before show with Dabo Sweeney, like in this current climate, does Debo Sweeney become Debo Sweeney? I would vote an emphatic. No, uh, right. that it doesn't happen. So I don't know, you know, in, a, in an industry that doesn't have a ton of stability, it might be an opportunity to where, like you mentioned, if he's around for even just two more years before we get to uh, some coaching search stuff and kind of everything that's gone around the sec. I always like to do this at the end of each year, I wish I'd sat down for like a couple hours before I left this morning to actually sort of like dig into it. But whatever, we'll just kind of go off the cuff here. I like looking at the final season stats because I always think it paints like an interesting picture, you know, what the team ended up being versus maybe what you thought they would be. And I'll tell you, the first thing that jumped out as we go through a couple of these, Ole Miss did not have the replace Elijah Moore by committee cliche that I think a bunch of us wrote about in camp. At all, um, when you look at this reception total, it's actually fascinating. Don'tario Drummond led this team in receptions with 66, and the next closest one was the exact same thing you had in 2019 when you had that ridiculous split between Elijah Moore, and the next closest receiver. The next one was a running back, and then at, uh, that was Jared Ely at 30. It happened again. Jacore Pearson third on the team in receptions with 26. Braylon Sanders 23. Jonathan Mingo, 20 in five games. I just, you know, when you look at this season as a whole, Drummond missed the Liberty game and then basically a half, if I remember correctly, of the Auburn game. He ends up with the most receptions on the team by a long shot. He's 36 more than Ely, and he's 40 more than the next closest receiver. I guess it kind of makes sense because how he's used in the slot, as you outlined earlier. Some of the pseudo running plays where it's the toss forward type deal on the sweep are pass plays. But I just found on the surface that reception disparity to be a little bit surprising.
0: Yeah. I'm a little surprised. I think obviously a lot of it had to do with injuries. Sure. Um, But Kiffin has kind of established this uh, reputation as finding the guy who's the best and just feeding him the football.
1: That may be the shocking part that it ended up being Drummond, as you put it that way. I think that's a good way to put it.
0: Yeah, I mean, he did it with Derrick Henry. He did it with Elijah last year. He he did it with Amari Cooper at Obama, Henry, Elijah. And this year, to an extent, it was Drummond. And I think it kind of came down to they moved him to the slot. Um, You can do a lot with the slot in this offense. And even with all the receivers were healthy, Drummond was the most consistent. And obviously those – Excuse me. Other two guys went down. He was kind of the stalemate in that wide receiver room. And he catches damn near everything that comes his way. And if you need these plays where you're like, okay, we got to go to our go-to guy this year, that was Drummond. Um, a credit to them, credit to D-Nicks and all that for, for getting them ready for it. Um, this offense is always a very much run first. And they had a stable of backs that did that, Um But with the exception of them, you had one, basically one tight end play the whole year and receivers that were hurt and Drummond was the guy that was always there. So I think it was a a circumstance thing, but also when they were all healthy, he was clearly the most efficient, the best one. So I didn't think it would be like by 30 catches, but I'm not overly surprised. They kind of fed him the ball
1: in different situations, different game plans, you know, depending on what they're going up against. It's funny. And most people that listen to this podcast know this already, but like, I feel like the casual fan uh, that watches Ole Miss in and out or just college football fan, maybe you're not even a fan of Ole Miss. You know, you hear a lot about Kiffin and Corral and score from far and all that stuff for the second year in a row. Ole Miss led the SEC in rushing yards. They, Ran it, I believe, the second – Arkansas ran it 497 times. Ole Miss finished with 490. I believe that was the second most in the conference. That's exactly what it was. They lead the conference in rushing yards. They led the conference in rushing touchdowns as well. The second year in a row this has happened, it's interesting. I wonder what this offense looks like next year without, you know, a Matt Corral per se at quarterback. But it's kind of fascinating with all kind of the bells and whistles and everything – you know, you hear and perceive about this offense, the, as the analogy I've written about quite a lot, the running game is really kind of what's the, the gas that powers the car here. I think leading the SEC and rushing your first two years at a program is a hell of an accomplishment, particularly when to, they don't – like I don't think anyone would consider Ole Miss necessarily a quote-unquote run-heavy team, but they sort of kind of are. I mean, they're pretty balanced. So I think that's another credit to the staff. But two years and only leading the SEC and rushing is uh, no small feat.
0: No, and I guess obviously look at the correlation between the two teams. Uh, their offensive coordinators, Bryles and Levy. They this is the Baylor offense. Yep. It is not, it is some kiffin' sprinkled in, but this is Levy's offense and Arkansas's is Bryles offense. And they do what they've done since Art was there at Baylor and they run the ball a lot. And Baylor, just like Ole Miss and Arkansas, these aren't Georgia and Alabama offensive lines it's a lot of it is just very much scheme based run it's tempo getting guys out of position and out of place and you know getting some holes here and there and getting some efficient four or five yard runs to set up deep shots and I think that's going to stay the same um, now if Levy leaves and there's a different coordinator you will see a different offense does that mean they won't continue to try to run the ball a lot no Given runs the ball too. Uh, you saw it with Alabama, with Henry, with, uh, with Drake and all those guys. I mean, if he's got a guy back there and they're confident, they're going to continue to do that. Um, but it's just a credit to them and figuring out, you know, first of all, recruiting the guys and putting them in the position to be successful and just executing exactly what they wanted to do. And every single year they start off with all of these different run plays and they put them in, and they kind of adjust with it. You saw that kind of like toss pitch and front run. Like, that was a new wrinkle. You know, they, they put in different stuff every week, and they try to find ways because they know that's the way this is going to be the most successful, and they've done it really, really well for two years in a row.
1: We just did that whole fantastic segment on the running game, and I just figured out that SEC is not updated to their stats yet, so that's only through 11 games, I believe. So, Ole Miss finished with 33 rushing touchdowns. But just to take a nice big old shit on the segment, I think because of the way the Arkansas game ended, they went for 254, Ole Miss goes for one of you more. I think Arkansas technically clipped them in yards by six yards. So that was nice. Uh, we'll leave that in there. We're not big on facts on this podcast. I think Ole Miss is going to technically finish second in the SEC in rushing yards, but the point, I think by six yards, if my crappy math is correct. So uh, thanks a lot, SEC, for not being up to date on that, but points still stands. They've run the ball really well for the last two years. And you're right. It's the, it's the Baylor offense. And it's interesting for a guy like Lane Kiffin, who's known as this innovative offensive mind and I don't mean to insinuate that like, that's not actually the case for him to look at, you know, what Levy did with the Baylor offense and kind of say that works. And, like, to think highly enough to bring him in and kind of give him a lot more autonomy than I think is publicly – a lot of times publicly, like, I don't think the public kind of – I mean, I, I don't know how many Joe Schmoes I've talked to with, you know, four beers deep at the bar talking about how this is Kiffin's offense. I'm like, not really at all. Like, that's not how this works. For someone like Kiffin to think as highly of that and kind of give him the autonomy speaks to, I think, the process and the scheme itself.
0: That's Kiffin's best asset. I think really in coaching is hiring people. Truly. I think that is his best asset. He got his ass kicked twice by UCF when he was at FAU. He saw that and was like, I need to bring this guy with me because I've seen him destroy me twice. Uh, with, you know, better talent. UCF is a better football team. The FAU was all those years, but um, he was like, I, this is what I need to do. And he continues to hire young coaches who really, you know, it's all about hunger. There's so many guys in this industry that are older and they've been around the block and they've been assistant coaches all over the place. So, you know, they go by reputation, not by actual work rate, but you see Kiffin, he's like, no, I want young guys who like give a shit and who are going to come in recruit and like really put in their effort because they want to get somewhere else. Um, so yeah, I mean, th- this is very, very much Levy's offense and yeah, I'm sure Kiffin does game plan stuff and he puts in his things he wants to see and he's more than capable of you know during a drive saying, nah, I've got this one, that's every head coach. but this is this is Levy's stuff and I've continued to say like just don't underestimate how important Levy has been to this whole thing, which is the same as Matt crowd. Don't underestimate this team's success for the last two years. Matt Corral has been as important as anybody, as well as Levy, as well as Kiffin, as well as Durkin. It's it's a group effort. Um, but that I do think that Kiffin has done a great job of putting together this staff of a mix of guys who you need experience, you know, like Phoenix, bringing him back on after letting him go, a mix with guys like, you know, Levy and – Partridge who hadn't really been in that kind of level yet of at least title wise guys like Randall Joyner, getting him to come in, you know, I, I knew who Joyner was from SMU. Cause those guys evaluated rec- out recruited freaking Texas sometimes I and mean, they were unbelievable and he's done a great job too. So uh, I think that will really never be an issue with Kiffin. You know, he's got plugged, he's plugged in everywhere and people want to go work for him.
1: That is music to the ears of anyone that, you know, s- suffered through the end of the Hugh Freeze era in particular, where, you know, his last offensive coordinator hire was literally to set him up to be the scapegoat so he could be the hero six games in and take back over, but that's neither here nor there. Looking at some of the rushing numbers for Ole Miss, it's fascinating. We talked all year about Ole Miss having this deep running back room. Uh, You know, it's a good problem to have. How are they kind of take advantage and utilize all three in an effective manner? If you had to take a guess on whom Ole Miss's leading rusher was in attempts, so how many times they ran the football, who would you guess?
0: corral
1: (laughs) it is corral yeah 145 carries uh jerry on ely was second with 121 i don't think matt corral sacked 24 times this year so i think that actually would bear out okay i get some of that scrambling but it was he was actually the leading rusher in uh in yards as well his net no excuse me sorry he had a ton of sack yards no yards gained he was the leading rusher but he had 184 uh lost yards which i still think is a stupid stat but whatever um Ole Miss, would, but kind of getting to the running back point, we talked about all three running backs. Snoop Connor ends up with 120 carries. Jerion Ely 121, and Henry Parrish, 101. And that's act after absorbing the last two games of the year, Parrish saw one carry against Vanderbilt and two against Mississippi State. I guess I'll hold up right there just for a second before I finish that point. That is something we did seem like kind of became a trend the last three games of the year. There may not be any rhyme or reason for it, But Henry Parris did not factor in as much offensively. Do you think there's any reason for that, or do you think that's just how the proverbial cookie crumbled?
0: A little bit of both. I I think Henry kind of lost a little steam. uh, But at the same time, I think Ely and Snoop were just playing better. And at the end of the day, if you're playing better and more consistent, you're going to get the ball more. And, you know, they notice those things. That's their job. I wouldn't take too much of it. I still think Henry's a really good running back. And I would—I don't think all three of them are going to be back next year, um, whether they go pro, whether they just want to be a, a stalwart at a, a different school, who knows. Um, but I, I'm not overly surprised by that at all.
1: And the fact that they all end up within kind of, I guess that's 20 carries of each other, 121 to 101, is pretty fascinating. I think that pretty accurately tells the story, though, of this team, don't you think? Look, it wasn't always – great in terms of like, you look at it and be like, I mean, we were the first ones to say it a lot of times in the podcast. We're like, I don't necessarily understand how they're, how or why they're using the running backs on a weekly basis, but it's not like a problem. But I think them ending up with that sort of balance and parity in terms of carry dispersion, I think that's a pretty accurate portrayal of how their years went. Do you agree? Disagree on that front?
0: No, I definitely agree.
1: Uh, I don't think there was any rhyme or reason why they did any
0: of it through the whole year. Um, I think it was just kind of a hot hand. Who's in? Who's out? You know, it's kind of running back rotation is not necessarily something you just game plan for every single week in and week out. Um, whether you should or should not is a different conversation. But uh, I think it really much. It really worked out. They were good at it pretty much all year except for the Alabama game. You know, they're a good. Ba- a good group of backs uh, that can continue to be really good. I think they brought in a kid that's going to be a good player. I think Bullock still has a chance to be a really good player. Um, But, no, I think they did a really good job with it overall.
1: Looking at Matt Corral stats, he finishes with, let's see, I want to make sure I have all this up to date because I believe the Ole Miss site is the one that actually has the 12 games. Shout out to Ole Miss for that one. Yeah, so Corral finishes 68.4 completion percentage. He finishes the year 259-379. 20 touchdowns, four interceptions. I believe I, when I looked this up, when I was uh, writing about him on Friday, he entered the year, entered that game with the fewest, tied for the fewest interceptions in the power five. You know, we've just mentioned he runs for 500 something yards. I think he had 11 touchdowns, I believe, running the football this year, 31 total touchdowns. Uh, I don't really know what you say about the guy at this point. He offered one more really awesome performance, and, you know, to kind of tie it back to the state game a little bit, he was one of the main differences in that game. Him making plays, a couple of really nice throws, a couple of plays with his feet to extend drives. I mean, for everything else, as good as Ole Miss played defensively, from an offensive standpoint, it came down to Ole Miss had a Matt Corral and Mississippi State did it. I mean, there were three or four times where he kind of put his imprint on this game. Uh, just a special season. I don't think he wins the Heisman. I think he gets invited to New York. But – Uh, I get it's not an MVP award. We've well-documented kind of the flaws in the Heisman voting and what it's turned into, but uh, I don't know if you could find someone else in the country that is as important to their team as Matt Corral. If you take Matt Corral off this football team, I don't know what their record is, but it's sure as hell not 10-2, and and uh, I'm running out of things to say about it, but man, what a remarkable season by that kid, and what a a story. What a way to rewrite your story at Ole Miss, and I doubt it's well-documented. Read the column at rebelgrove.com, but my God, what a year and what a uh, narrative change. That's our favorite word. It's probably a good way to bookend it.
0: Yeah. um, I mean, he's the best quarterback in the country and, you know, it's always interesting when I was watching the the Egg Bowl with a bunch of family, uh, all my family's on my mom's size from Texas. They're in Fort Worth and Dallas. Some are UT people, some LSU people, TCU, Oklahoma, and they obviously don't watch a lot of Ole Miss. And, Having to explain to them, like, just how good Matt Corral is was like a chore. It was like, look, you guys just don't get it. Like, you, the, even in this game, like, you know, he's not having his best game. But if you go and watch this guy, like, he is just different. He is different than guys that all of your schools have had <laughs> throughout the years. Like, he is the best quarterback in the country. And this team is not 10-2 without him. This team might not go – They're probably going to a bowl game without him, but they might not win. It's close, though.
1: It is close.
0: I just just don't think people can understand how good he is and how much easier it makes it on Kiffin and Levy to call offense when you've got a guy that you trust that can make the throws that he can. And he did all that while being hurt for damn near half the season, having all of his receivers hurt at one point, having his most important important offensive lineman out for the – Home stretch of the season and he just continued to just will them to wins. And it is he is the most important position on the field. And he is the most important player to this team. And one of the most important players really to the program ever. I mean, truly ever. I mean, no, it's I, true. I really do think that it is true. Um, and I think he's gonna have pot- potentially a could have a great pro career. You never know. You truly, you truly never know what turns out. Uh, once you get to that level, it, it's such a different game and everything. But um, I hope he gets invited to New York. Um, I don't think he's gonna win any of these like kind of ancillary awards like Maxwell or Davy O'Brien and stuff like that. Um, why? Because we people are lazy.
1: <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's the
0: only yeah. wild explanation that's worth it. Um, I mean, you watched you know all three of the quarterbacks: Stroud, Bryce Young, and Corral all had rivalry games. Uh, Stroud actually played pretty well, but his team got their ass kicked. Uh, Bryce Young played like shit except for one drive as I tweeted and kind of went a little halfway viral, Credit to myself.
1: There we go.
0: Uh, and Corral dominated his, you know, and that's just – it just doesn't – he doesn't get enough credit, I'll say it for forever. I don't think he's going to win the Heisman, and I don't necessarily think he should um, just – all things considered, you know, it's unfortunate, but I don't know who's going to win it, but someone's going to kind of fall into it, whether it's go snatch it and take it. I hope he gets invited because he deserves it, deserves that kind of experience. And for people to on a big stage like that, appreciate, watch some of the highlights and see what he was able to do for this team. And he's unbelievable. And to make it even better, he's just an awesome kid too. And he's super, super easy to cheer for, works his ass off incredibly positive. Everyone likes him. And I think that'll be the same way in the pros. Hopefully he gets put in a good position, because as we've seen with some of these rookies this year, that doesn't always happen. Um, But credit to him because he's been awesome.
1: Yeah. And from a professional football outlook on it, like you hope to God he doesn't end up in Detroit. But like at the same time, I do think, however many, if, if there's a quarterback taken before him or multiple, I think that's one mistake, two mistakes, however many. I think he's the best quarterback by far, and I've watched a decent amount of the other guys because I've kind of tried to make it a point to. I, I, I don't, I get it. Things don't always turn out this way, and the NFL can be weird in that sense. But man, if you take someone over Matt Corral, you probably made a mistake, and it'll be you're interesting putting your job on the him.
0: line. Yes, you're, you're putting are. your job on the line as as a. Uh, As a GM, you know, it's not the biggest quarterback draft. You know, there's not a lot of surefire, including Matt. But if you go out there and you take Pickett or, God forbid, Willis over Corral, that's your job on the line, as you saw with the Bears GM. If you mess that up and Corral ends up being what we definitely think he could be, you're looking for a world of hurt.
1: Yeah, I was about to say you're also kind of telling on yourself a little bit if it goes even remotely what we think it is. So it'll be fascinating, and I think this this flies in. I had a point where I was going to kind of mention as far as the pro football aspect of it, the unflappable nature about him, like any sort of intangibles or whatever, like he seems to have developed all those. And kind of one last encompassing thought on it, the biggest difference between Corral this year and last year is seems to be the decision-making, and you mentioned – Kind of trying to articulate to your family that doesn't watch Ole Miss day in and day out how important that is to Ole Miss. I imagine the sheer aspect of Kiffin and Lebby realizing, whether they knew it before the year or pretty early on in the year, that they can call whatever, they can probably feel comfortable doing whatever because they know he's going to make the right decision more often than not, and he's not going to make a crippling mistake. You could make an argument. I don't remember all four of his interceptions. I know for a fact one of them that I remember off the top of my head was not his fault, but you could argue the Jet Johnson interception, the Egg Bowl, might have been the worst decision he made all year that turned into a turnover. I know there were a couple of drops, a lot of dropped interceptions along the way, but out of the four, that was the one that was probably the worst decision. Like I imagine having the confidence in your quarterback. Of not that he's going to make the right decision and he's not going to screw something up for you is a gigantic boost to what you can do and kind of be as a play caller.
0: Absolutely. I think uh on the small negative side, uh AM he had two pretty bad fumbles. Um, that's something he definitely would need to work on. in, in the NFL, those pass rushers are a lot different breeds. And I think he got a little whiff of that with those guys at AM because those those guys are monsters, but no absolutely taking care of the football is the most important thing you look at a guy you know like Matt Corral just you know from intangibles and actual abilities probably more talented than Matt Jones but you watch Matt Jones like he just knows what to do with the football if Corral gets to that kind of level it's just knowing what to do with the football being smart and then showing off when you need to show off cuz he can surely do that i mean that's just huge and i think there's going to be an NFL team early in that draft that is like, you know, maybe this guy isn't a day oneer, but if we can put him in the right position, give him some time to figure out the NFL because, you know, they don't really get that very often these rookies, he has a chance to be really, really good.
1: Incredible year, one that Ole Miss fans will remember, I think, for a long time. And, you know, I wrote in the piece on Friday, but, like, you know, whether he's the best quarterback or where he ranks in Ole Miss history is a subjective argument, but you could argue he's the – most important because where this program was before, you know, when he got here versus the way he's leaving it. And as good of a job as Kiffin and Lebby and Durkin and this entire staff have done, this season doesn't happen. And this turnaround doesn't happen dramatic as dramatically quick as it did without Matt Corral. I I don't even think it's close. I'm not sure how last year goes weird COVID year, whatever, but this year certainly doesn't turn out the way it does without Matt Corral. So just a, again, you run out of adjectives for it, but man, what a phenomenal season. And, you know, it's, it's good that he got to uh, finish it off in style. So before we get to the coaching search stuff and kind of everything that happened this weekend, I did something you said. We brought it up. I think I brought it up to Chase on Friday that stuck out earlier in the year. I think it even turned into its own message board thread regarding the two programs in the state. And I was trying to think of this game from a big picture perspective. Look, I'm not going to sit here and declare that Ole Miss is done losing state and stuff like that. That's just not really how the history of this rivalry works. But had Ole Miss lost that game on Thursday night, there would have been a narrative that I'm not necessarily sure is true about where the two programs are headed and maybe them being on a little bit more even footing. And I think Ole Miss winning this game sort of solidified, you know, the track that they're on versus maybe what state is. And not only that, but kind of the ceiling of the two programs. And I think that was important. Like, the, to me, the right result happened on Thursday, Thursday night. But the thing that you said that stuck out was well, a while back was, when you're Mississippi State, you're kind of your biggest selling point with kids that Ole Miss and State are both going after or upper tier kids Or like, look at Ole Miss. They're a mess. And now you don't have that. Looking at the other side of it from the state aspect of it, what do you think this mean, this win means and just state as kind of long term as a program? Because I thought about this a lot. The whole do what you do thing is twofold where Kiffin had a quote about it on earlier in the week where he's like, you know, most of the time guys get fired when they don't evolve, but Mike Leach has found something that's worked and there is some merit to that. And you see it with like the almost robotic, like there were a couple of throws Will Rogers made where he threw it. The guy turns around literally about a foot or two for the football gets to him. It's perfect timing. I mean, almost literally looks like ballet or poetry. I think because they do the same thing over and over again, you see some of that. I heard Pete DeWeese talk about that when he was breaking down film on Neil's pregame show but there's also a ceiling to it as well. So I'm just curious to how you think this game had any effect on what this says about the two programs and how you view Mississippi state's future, because it is a team that brings a bunch of dudes back next year. But I just wonder what the ceiling is of a do what you do offense.
0: Yeah, I guess I'll start with, you know, what it meant for each program. And I was thinking about it while I was watching the game. And I've always thought this since I've been to Ole Miss as a student and worked for him, but This game was a big game for Ole Miss because they needed to win 10 games, not because they needed to beat Mississippi State. Yep. And if Ole Miss wants to be considered a a team that can compete in the West and compete nationally and make a hypothetical 12-team playoff, beating Mississippi State should be an afterthought, not a, a goal in the season. You know, I've always said that it, this whole state, this whole stupid rivalry be a lot healthier if it was like Iowa-Iowa State they played week two so that people wouldn't make up bullshit narratives about what happens on the last game of the season and how that acts towards the trajectory of the programs. Because Ole Miss, this was their, their fourth biggest game of the year in reality. The only reason it was as big as it was was where it was placed because if they won this game, they won 10 games first time ever. LSU was a bigger game. AM, Alabama, Auburn, all were bigger games this year than Mississippi State was. And this was Mississippi State's biggest game by far because it was Ole Miss. And that was, it was not reciprocal the other way around. And um it had Ole Miss lost this game, they would have been nine and three. They would still be a top 12 program, maybe still going to a New Year six. And the only thing that would have changed was a little yapping and not having the golden egg in Oxford for whatever that means. You know, it's important. It's a rivalry game. But at the end of the day, Ole Miss was the better football team, no matter what really happened. And they had the better season and they're a program that is on the rise. Um, not necessarily more so than Mississippi State, but just in general, Um so that's I've always just found that this game has to be less a for Ole miss than it has been in the past. It has to be a uh, a stepping stone to something bigger, not you know, the end of the staircase, I guess you could say, for a uh, an analogy. Um, that being said, I don't know what the ceiling for Mississippi State is, but they are bringing a lot of guys back and I think they're gonna be pretty damn good next year. I don't know I what their schedule. Well. I don't know what their schedules like, but Leach, yeah, he's he's not going to adjust. No, know. you know, you saw some of his teams, Washington State. You know, year in, year out, sometimes they put together a really good run. Could that be next year for Mississippi State? I think it could be. I think Rogers is getting better. I think a lot of those receivers are coming back. Um, they're losing Charles Cross, who's a hell of a player. Um. But I'm sure they'll find a guy to to put in there um, that will be competent enough. You know, offensive line is never really their biggest thing. And it doesn't have to be because they don't run the ball all that much. They just have to be able to pass it. Um, I expect them to be really – I expect them to be pretty damn good next year. Uh, And Ole Miss, however this quarterback thing settles up, will kind of dictate how good they could be next year. But I don't think they're going to be – you know, taking this ginormous step back to where they're going to go from second in the West to just some guaranteed uh, seventh (laughs) by any means. So even though Mississippi State didn't win this game, you know, they're what, seven and five or six and six. It's not like they're like just falling under the basement because they lost the egg bowl. Right. That's not the case at all. They lost to a really good football team, just happened to be Ole Miss. Um, I think they got a chance to be pretty good next year.
1: Your point about the game, like it being at the end of the year versus like what it would actually be if it were in like September, is dead on it's something I've wondered for a long time don't probably I say they I don't even know who you would talk to about this I'm just gonna guess it's never getting moved away from the end of the year stranger things have happened, but I would be I think it might be a benefit to Ole Miss, if it ever did, and. To your point on top of that, and I'm sure some of this you saw in the recruiting side of it, State kind of, I mean, they know it. Deep down, whether they want to admit it or not, they do kind of thrive on kind of dragging Ole Miss down in the proverbial mud, and what I mean by that is making that game a Super Bowl and something more than it is. To me, State thrives in that, where that can only do bad things for Ole Miss, both as a program and on a year-to-year basis, just as it pertains to the game, is kind of getting down in the weeds of that game being more so than it is. I guess the great irony and all that is, the state just fired a guy that won two Egg Bowls, but there were a lot of more factors at play. But a little you bit know, different situation. Yeah, exactly. Like you know, and but for the lack of lack of a more nuanced summation, Matt Luke kind of got his job because he won the 2017 Egg Bowl, and I think that's a stark kind of contrast. To where if you book an old Miss's mindset as just another game, get to ten wins like they did on Friday night, it's not shockingly hey. that they're a New Year Six team versus that being their everything and dictating coaching hires off of it. And so I wonder if you saw any of that in the recruiting aspect of it is Mississippi State certainly thrives more trying to kind of drag Ole Miss down to that level, for the lack of a better phrase.
0: The recruiting for those two schools is is so weird um, because kind of the past few years, neither of them have gotten the top guys. Right. They've all gone, I mean, like a guy like N'Kobe, you know, never even considered Mississippi State, but he ends up at Georgia. Some of those guys, those big defensive linemen in 19 went other places. And, you know, Mississippi State kind of has thrived on getting some lower level kind of developmental guys in Mississippi and doing a phenomenal job of getting them to be contributors early and late in their careers. And, you see these two programs now, and they don't even really seem to emphasize Mississippi except for with some of the top guys. Should they or should they not be doing that? It's not really my call anymore, so I don't know. It's, it's hard to say. Um, there's always a terrible... Every year there's always like two or three guys in state where people write stupid stories about them and like neither team won them. And they're always like, oh, like if it's one of them gets them, it's like a big win, when in reality, like either Ole Miss didn't want the kid or Mississippi State didn't want the kid. He ended up at the other school. It's not a recruiting win. I know one kid specifically last in the 2020 class was considered this like really big get for Mississippi State. It was like a wire-to-wire recruiting between Ole Miss and Mississippi State. And I can tell you for a fact that we didn't recruit the kid for like six months. And these guys are writing stories about him. And putting him up as this big recruiting battle and like, oh, state's getting them. And, oh, Ole Miss has the momentum again, which is all bullshit. It's just writers creating a story out of nothing, um, which is kind of a weird tangent I just went on. Um, It's relevant though. It is relevant because I think you're seeing now, I mean, I don't know what the board's like, but there's some kids that are in these battles with state and Ole Miss right now they're in state and out of state that can tell you, if I had to guess, there's a good chance one team doesn't even really want them and one team may want them a lot more. That's just the way evaluations work. And um, I think the portal is going to change up a lot of the recruiting. Uh, Mississippi State will always finish off with some kid they want at the end. They always find that one defensive prospect, go on and get him. Whether that's going to be Otis this year or the other kid from Ocean Springs, I don't know. It'll probably be one or the other. Um, but they don't recruit the same kind of kids necessarily. Ole Miss is more national. And by national, I mean like Southern national, not like California national. Mississippi State is very much uh, try to get the top kids in Mississippi, then the second tier Louisiana, Alabama guys, and it has worked for them. Um, Leach is now back into Texas. That's where all the quarterbacks are coming from. That's where some of their skill guys are coming from. So, I think as the rivalry has been de-emphasized by both coaches, I think the heated recruiting battles between the schools have also kind of been de-emphasized. They're just not going after the same kids. And even if they are, it's no guarantee it's actually a battle. It's probably just one guy is going to get them or the other guy is going to get them. The stories and narratives around it will probably be just conjured by either, no offense, it could be Ole sites and it could be State sites. You never know. Um, but I think it's a lot has changed and a lot will change with the way these two teams for uh recruit.
1: I say this as we are finishing this thought and I look up and Lane Kiffin is trending on Twitter and it is because it appears he has finally gotten a hold of the uh, Mississippi state having the go to hell Ole Miss deal in their little like recruiting lounge or whatever the hell that is. That might be the most perfect encapsulation of what we were just talking about. I couldn't even have scripted that any better. So it'll be fascinating good right. year for Ole Miss we will be uh we'll have plenty of stuff for you obviously when we figure out where Ole Miss is going bowling and all that stuff let's kind of bounce around the uh the SEC and get to what happened both on a coaching search front and uh you know what uh what's going on with the uh last week of the season as well let's start with I don't know <clears throat> Shit, let's go to the Iron Bowl what an insane game Auburn has a hell of a defensive performance Alabama can't do anything for, you know, really three and three quarters of a quarter orchestrates this absurd drive. To me, if I were in this rivalry involved in any way, and I were on the Auburn side of it, this to me would keep me up at night for a long time. There was opportunity after opportunity to win this game that they had no business winning. And they really kind of screwed it up. I was shocked that they didn't go for two when they scored in overtime, looking at how Finley was walking around and really limping around they weren't having much going offensively i wouldn't have wanted that game going into a two-point conversion off because i know alabama was winning that from the start shocker that's what happened but never got to that point just your take on this game i watched it with a couple buddies before uh our pal william mayo had an engagement party last night but uh just an all-timer like that was one of those where you're looking and you're like i don't want this to end because it's awesome but auburn should have ended it sooner
0: I mean, this game came down to two plays. I watched a decent amount of it, but I had to walk into the LSU A&M game as overtime started. Fourth and five, there's one minute left in the game. Auburn has two timeouts. You're on Auburn's 45 driving towards Alabama, and you punt them back the football. You get five yards, the game is over. And at the end of the day, they ended up driving 98 yards anyway. So instead of 98, it would have been, like, 78 or 68, bad math. Um, that's just not putting your players in a position to win football games. You, What do you have to lose? Like, all, Alabama has everything to lose in that game. Auburn, you know, you win the Iron Bowl, which is huge for that program, but you, it's either 7-5 or 6-6, six and six, right? Right. And that ended up at.
1: Yes. You just
0: insanely just – just awful, just awful from every single level. I could not believe they punted them back the football. Um, and then, obviously, the second play you brought up, they score in overtime. Um, obviously, I'm not watching it, but I'm kind of paying attention. People around us in the stands are watching it and they don't decide not to go for two. I get you're at home, but you're the worst team. You're the underdog. You have a chance again from now two yards to just end the game, and you don't do it. I just don't understand it. I, I If I'm Harson, like, what are you thinking coaching this game? Like, the fact that you're in the game is a minor miracle in itself and a credit to them for, I guess, playing the way they did and him preparing them for the way they did. But just in-game coaching, not, don't, don't even have to say analytics, just sheer looking at it from a neutral perspective and Common realizing – Common sense and just being like, why are you doing this? I don't understand it. I thought it was the biggest bitch move I've ever seen. Or not maybe not ever seen, but it just it was embarrassing. They should have won the game. And if they just have some faith in their players instead of being little babies and giving Alabama just more and more chances to win, I mean, they lost the game. Alabama didn't win it. Literally, Auburn lost it. And that's never a position you want to be in. I just couldn't believe they didn't go for it or go for two.
1: And I don't know if you ever ended up going back and seeing the touchdown, but the only reason they scored that touchdown in the uh, overtime was the fourth string tight end. I think like a one-hander. Yeah. Yeah, Just an absolutely absurd play. Like credit to the kid. It was an unbelievable play by him, but the fact that that just was, like you got it you scored on that opportunity i was like if anything i look at that one-handed catch and pick like, we need to end this now because we have nothing going for us i'm with you I, I thought it was shocking when you look at that from both sides of it uh i are you, you agree disagree i think georgia might boat race alabama next week um i'm just not 100% i get it it's alabama they're talented on the like perimeter i i don't know how they block georgia i, I
0: think it could be a boat race i think they could kick their ass I also will have absolutely nothing to do with taking Kirby smart and seven. That's also true. <laughs> there is, you cannot pay me money to put money on a touchdown favorite Georgia in a big game over saving and Alabama. I will not do it. Um, which is probably why Georgia will win by 14. and Everybody will lose their money because they'll probably think the exact same thing. Um, Georgia is so much better at damn near every level, except for quarterback. They're so much better than Alabama, um, and if, if you tell me that Bama wins that game, I'm just not going to be surprised.
1: I There's a part of me that thinks that, too, and there's that ridiculous stat between, like, the two or three meetings or whatever it is between that one SEC title game and the playoff where, like, out of 120 <laughs> regulation minutes, like, Georgia <laughs> led for 118 and a half of them or 0 and 2. And yeah. that's just what that honestly makes me feel that like more confident in that take is this game doesn't matter for Georgia other than just having the SEC title crown. They're getting it in the playoff either way. I guess it could matter for seating, but like it means a lot more to Alabama. Georgia, the only like the only motivation I have in there other than, you know, I guess the SEC title crown is just we need to go stick it to these guys that have somehow gotten the better of us a couple of times. And I think they might be out for blood in that sense. But
0: yeah, your I, point wouldn't
1: stun me either. I'm not – I don't feel great about no. Kirby Smart in that scenario.
0: But the weirdest thing about this game, and I was I was walking into the uh, LSU game with a buddy of mine, Polk, who went to Georgia, and he was like, yeah, you know, I actually heard, you know, we're, we're going to go to Miami for the one seed instead of uh, Dallas. And I was like, oh, that's kind of weird. But then at the same time, I was like, well, what's really the big difference? Who knows what Georgia's motivation for this game is? I mean, winning an SEC championship is obviously a huge accomplishment and they're going to play their ass off, but seeding wise, it doesn't matter. They're going to be in whether they're wearing white jerseys in Miami or red jerseys in Dallas. It means nothing to them. Um, Will that be in the back of their minds? Hell no. But um, you know, it's a weird, it's a weird dynamic having to play this game for a, for an SU championship, which is important, but at the end of the day, the playoff has made everything kind of mute. So, who knows exactly how much they want to win. I'm sure it's a lot, but it's kind of a weird dynamic.
1: And on top of that... Um... This will have implications for Ole Miss, like in terms of where they go, whether that's Sugar Bowl Correct. or whatever. Correct. I don't think Ole Miss ends up in the Sugar Bowl, but that's also because I don't think Alabama beats Georgia. But we shall see. Auburn side of it, weird deal. A lot of Brian Hartson smoke the UW. I don't know if that's died down or not died down in the coming days or in the last couple of days, but how do you just sort of uh, – how do you view that? Because that does not seem like a fit that's necessarily long for this world. It's a weird year. After they left the Ole Miss game, you're like, shit, this team controls its own destiny for the West with the month left. Bo Nick's looking better. They're tougher. And uh, did they have they won a game since? I can't remember. I, I'm not sure if they have. There may have been somewhere in between. But point being, how do you see that? Uh, how do you see that? Because it doesn't seem like a fit.
0: Man, I don't think it's going to work out long term, which is kind of weird because. I don't know. I mean, they've they've lost games they should not have any business losing. They should have won that Penn State game in the beginning of the year. They should have finished it out against Mississippi State, and they should have beaten Alabama. Um, And at the end of the day, like, good teams win close games and bad teams and badly coached teams lose close games. I don't even think Harson's a bad coach, but there has not been a lot of evidence this year at Auburn that leads me to believe that he is a good coach either. (laughs) Um, this whole Alabama game leaves a terrible taste in my mouth when it comes to my confidence in this guy making that program what it can be. If UW wants him, which kind of doesn't really seem like they want to as much as people assume that they did, if I was him, I would be on the first flight to Seattle. Get, the, get me the hell out of this place. Um, I think Auburn is an incredibly good job, but also maybe the most overrated job in the country. Because at the end of the day, you're going to be de- – your success is determined by beating your biggest rivals, which happen to be LSU, Georgia, and Alabama.
1: <laughs> That's a tough one.
0: It's a tough one. And year in, year out, it's going to be incredibly possible for the next five years that they never go 3-0 and against those guys, ever. So you're just in a shit situation with just where you are, the standard of the program compared to the reality of where Auburn is these days um this guy doesn't seem like a fit their ad seems like a super bright smart guy who ended up maybe overthinking this one a little bit by not letting billy napier name his price and his staff (laughs) um so I, i don't know it doesn't seem good and they threw away this game and if i'm a fan i'm like i don't want i don't trust this guy and i don't want him either
1: you talk about, like, you know, rivalry games putting too much – like, people putting too much emphasis on it. That's one where I imagine the whole outlook for Harson's deal, if he did pull that shit off, is probably a hell of a lot different to where it seems like much of the same and maybe even exacerbated by the fact that he blew it. Like
0: Right. Fair or not. You right. Know, it doesn't I don't, matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Um, just in the position they were in, it was kind of similar to Mississippi State is, you know, winning that game is more of a, a launching pad into next year – and then losing it, it's not the end of the world, but also, you know, they just gave it to them. And they're not going to have many opportunities to beat that team. And they had one, and they just didn't do it. And there's already issues there, clearly, and it seems like that's kind of coming to the surface, and this cannot help.
1: I didn't know you were at LSU a I watched not a lick of that game because <laughs> of uh, I was dressed up in a – uh suit no tie situation one of these uh, engagement deals. What well, what happened? And then big picture <laughs> stuff. Well, we'll get to that first. What, what the hell happened in this game? I literally, when I say I did not watch a single snap, I did not watch one snap of this.
0: Yeah, so um, it was about 50% full. Uh, it was cold as hell. Um, I had a great time. It was fun. And thank God we beat them because, uh, as we've previously mentioned, they are now my most hated team in the SEC, maybe in the whole country. So seeing those those guys lose is just a blessing, and then having to sit behind them in traffic on the way to Houston with a smile on my face as they <laughs> pissed uh, was also nice. Um, you know, the, the LSU defense, man, throughout the whole second half of this season, you know, Durante Jones is not going to be there next year, but he did a hell of a job. They have it's a lot of injuries,
1: injured, like crippling ones,
0: crippling injuries uh, on every single level of that defense, and they came out and they were just so much more physical than AM um, on that side of the ball the entire game. Offensively for LSU, that system, seeing it in person again for like the third time, it is dog shit. And Pete's like blew an opportunity this year to like prove himself. That, that offensive system is dog shit. Um, Max Johnson got his ass kicked on every single drive. And credit to him, just literally came back in and just kept on throwing the ball, kept on putting the putting receivers in a position to be successful. They ran the ball pretty well. Um, it really shouldn't have been that close. I mean, LSU was a like 17 to seven and they just had just like five or four or five offensive possessions in a row that were just terrible and just giving AM half fields to go down there and score. Um and then just really miraculously somehow finished it off in that last drive. It was it was a pretty awesome game. A um, and man, that guy's they, making a lot
1: of money to go eight and four. And I get lot. it's a backup quarterback, but that roster that was a quarterback battle until one of the final weeks of camp. I don't think that excuses anything.
0: No, um, that defense is that defensive line is just really really awesome. And that's about all I can say positively about that team. Um, they didn't run the ball at all against LSU. They have two really good running backs, and they just kind of didn't do it. Calzada is just very average, and the offensive system itself is just—we've mentioned it before—you um, know, unless you're Georgia, you you can't run offense like that and be overly successful. They they're so slow. They aren't really creative, um, and when you don't have a quarterback that's that efficient and, uh, you know, exceptional necessarily, it's just not going to look great. And down the stretch, they have just been inept on the road. It's been bad. Um, they're 8-4, and four, another shit since November for A&M. And, I mean, I think Jimbo's a good coach, but I, I don't know – if I can just definitively say that he's better than, you know, Saban, Kiffin, Pittman, Leach. (laughs) I mean, I don't know. I just, they have so much, so many resources there, and they just continue to falter in the games that are important. I mean, what is the biggest, like they beat A&M, and they are fifth in the West. That says everything about them. They beat A&M, and they are fifth in the West. I think they're fifth. Maybe they're fourth. Regardless, it's not what they expected coming into this year at all. And they're in trouble, man. Or they're not in trouble but because that they're recruiting at a ridiculous level. Um, but at some point, you have to kind of take advantage of it, like we talked about Ole Miss and Corral, like take advantage of your situation.
1: They are doing the exact opposite. It seems like a part of it is them not being able to find the quarterback. Like it seemed like he made the most out of Mon. But what's interesting about that COVID year, I think that'll get used if if there's another eight and four mixed in, I don't know what they'll be like next year. That's probably a conversation for another day. But if next year is a disappointment, whatever that is, where they go below expectation, don't you think that 10 and one year or whatever the hell it was last year will start being used against him? It's like, yeah, well, it's COVID, like that. Like I think that'll be like almost be a discounting factor versus them being a one loss SEC program that. I don't want to say screwed out of the playoff, but kind of odd that they didn't get in because I think most president would tell you most one-loss SEC teams would get in. I think that could be used against him, and then you're looking up in, you know, two years where you're like, what what did we pay this guy for? An Orange Bowl? They can't fire him. No, they, they, <laughs> they <with> cannot. <laughs> and uh, Emil
0: Fisher is probably on the phone right now or looking at his phone, begging them to fire him. He that will be the happiest day in his coaching career because they will pay him $95 (laughs) million. The other
1: side of that, that's a good transition.
0: Oh, no, go ahead, finish your thought. No, no, no. just and he will ride into the sunset as the happiest person in America. They will not fire him, so they're stuck with it. And he better adjust, but he honestly doesn't have
1: to because they're not firing him, so it doesn't matter. Um, it's a weird, a weird situation. And I imagine he looks at his boss and is like, these these dudes are going to trust this guy to make this hire. Uh, I think Ole Miss fans are well-versed in that. Uh, The other side of that, though, where is this LSU thing going? I know this is probably something you have a lot of thoughts on. Lincoln Riley, we'll get to in just a second to kind of wrap this thing up, but, like, he's the head coach at USC now. We'll get to that in a minute. We could probably go – those two things overlap in some ways, but where is this going? I'll open it up to you with this pointed question does the result at all last night change your thinking on maybe Woodward making another swipe at Jimbo Fisher? I don't think he's getting fired, as you mentioned, so this is probably a moot conversation. But how do you see this going? Do you think the Jimbo thing's over?
0: No, I don't think it's over. Um, I I do think that if Jimbo decides he wants to say yes, that that Woodward will do it. I think precedent is set for that. I think they're very close. Um. I've had a lot of time in the car to think about what happened today um, with all Lincoln-Riley stuff. Um, I – maybe it's – I'm naive. Maybe it's because I've met Scott and know Scott. I mean, knows is a strong word. I would know of him and have been around him at least. I have a weird feeling LSU has their guy. And I have a weird feeling that they – Lincoln was probably real and they probably went through their due diligence. But no one – I just don't think this USC thing came out today out of just happenstance after the LSU stuff. I have a feeling Lincoln was going to leave. He was not ever going to go to LSU and that he was always going to go to USC. And this was kind of a, a smokescreen by USC, this whole, like, Campbell-Aranda stuff, when the reality, like, they had their guy. And I think it was kind of the other side on LSU where maybe they were definitely interested, went and did their due diligence, maybe even talked to him. He said not interested. And then that could have been a while ago. I think LSU has their guy. I don't know who the hell it is, but I, I just – there's no way Woodward woke up Sunday morning seeing Lincoln Riley to USC and was surprised. That's just there's
1: no way this. That's just not how this thing works, in my opinion. Don't. You may think have just answered okay. it, but to add on to your thought, do you think he did? So you, you probably know the answer to this, like or you may have already answered. It is what I should say. I was going to ask, do you think he, what Dan Mullen did with Tennessee to leverage the Florida contract? Do you think there was any sort of that there?
0: I think to an extent, um, yeah, that might be a decent. Kind of analogy. It's not apples to way. apples.
1: I'm just curious if there was any sort of no. like similar uh behavior strategic part there.
0: Yeah, well, there was so much smoke and fire about Riley to LSU on Friday. That's when everybody got almost like, done. Right. And it was like, okay, that like, this is happening. And I kept on like telling myself, like, man, I, I don't see it. This doesn't make any sense. Like the way this search has been done, like, nobody has known anything about what LSU is going to do the entire time. And all of a sudden, this one day before Oklahoma plays Oklahoma State, you know, we're all supposed to be glued in to see if Oklahoma State wins so that Riley will announce on Sunday he's going to LSU. It just didn't make any sense to me. And when I saw him going to USC, I was like, okay, this makes so much more sense. Clearly, he was leaving. And it was kind of an LSU media, you know, fishbowl of of like, we're all saying the same thing to each other because he is leaving and we've heard something of something that's real, but it was actually never to LSU. It was always somewhere else. And USC kind of came like in the night and was like, yeah, we just didn't, we floated out other names for this guy, LSU, his name was floated out, but maybe Woodward actually, they already crossed this path. It didn't work out. We have our other guy. It's weird. I don't know what's going to happen. But I do think there is a correlation to that, I guess you could say, um, with Lincoln kind of leveraging it. But from what I've read, it doesn't seem like he actually cared about leverage because I don't think he even gave Oklahoma an opportunity to match.
1: I I can't find a contract figure. Is that out there?
0: I I haven't seen one. And I did see one tweet where – I mean – Oklahoma's AD is, like, considered the best in the country. And Woodward, you know, people kind of dig on him for having a little bit of an ego. But his, you know, contributions to his programs have been much more than just hiring big-time coaches. He, he's really good at his job, too. I don't think anybody was just wildly caught off guard here from the inside. From the outside, it sure looks like it. From the inside, you know, uh, Castiglione, I think is his name, in Oklahoma –
1: who is also widely regarded as one of the better ads in the country. Right. Exactly. Well. Exactly. He did not wake up Sunday either with a shocked face when when
0: Riley left for USC. He had to have known this was coming to an extent. Um it's it is I don't think there's any precedent been set for for a change like this Oklahoma to USC. I mean it's it's a kind of a it's not a step up or a step down. It's it's the same thing just a different challenge, I guess. It's, it's bizarre.
1: You mentioned Mike bone aspect of it. That's USC's AD. He came from university of Cincinnati and I don't pretend to know anything about the guy, but I will tell you this. When I was in Cincinnati doing the MLB internship, there's this bar I would go to down the street from my house. And there was this regular group of dudes who were big, like a couple of them are Xavier guys, a couple of them are UC guys, but they were big, like chopping up, talking sports on the scene. And, you know, a lot of times, most I would say most of the time when you have athletic directors there's a contingency of the fan base that doesn't like them or likes them. They're very rarely unilateral, where it's like this guy rocks because it's just an administrative position. Everything you're judged on is completely subjective. That guy was a rock star at Cincinnati by all accounts. And I mean, this is a small sample size. This is one random-ass bar in Oakley. But even just other people I would talk to around there, even people in Reds media, were like, no, that guy that guy knows his shit. What a coup by this dude. We were talking about, I think our words last week, uh, I can't remember which one of us said it, but we were both in agreement. USC is screwed. They're not now. And so no. that's the other part of this. It's a hell of a hire. It's a great splash hire. I saw our uh, our friend Brennan Chapman mentioned about Lincoln Raleigh not living up to expectations. Uh, the like Twitter function did inform me that you liked it. Classic put it in the bio, retweets, not endorsements. Do you believe that? Because I will push back a little bit. The worst finish they've had under Lincoln Riley, I believe it'll probably be changed this year, seventh in the country. I think he's gone to the playoff multiple times. Look, he hasn't won the national title like Stoops did, but the guy recruited at a very high level and got them to the playoff twice. How do you view him as a head coach?
0: Oh, uh, he's really good. I like that tweet probably because I just saw Bren tweeted. I don't even agree with it. <laughs> um no, he is a hell I of I think a he's coach. good. And it's unfortunate that these days, like it's like a national championship bust, like as if Oklahoma hasn't been happy with the success they've had the last right. five or six years. Um, he's a hell of a recruiter. I don't know if you've seen this, but like every single top twenty-two and twenty-three kid they have committed is decommitted in the last like twenty minutes. It is they're all going to USC. They're all going to USC. They're like three over four of them are from Southern California. Somebody said I saw in, in an article that Riley has been, over the last six months, highly emphasizing his Southern California recruiting. Their top, like, four or five guys in 23 are all from Los Angeles, including the quarterback. They all decommitted or going to USC. The, the guy was like – I think the story said he's been coaching with one foot out of the door for six months, and nobody saw it or paid attention to it, which is – some godfather shit i mean that is that really unbelievable, is. it's it is pretty unbelievable um it's pretty crazy you know and of course of course there's lsu people out there saying like oh he didn't have the balls for the sec he didn't want that smoke like you got that that is insane
1: that's a clay like, travis tweet wait that to is happen.
0: bullshit you know is that true to an extent like are you kidding me what sounds better to you Going and living in Los Angeles, where it is sunny and 75 every single day, you have the best job on the West Coast and an easier division. You get paid plenty of money and can absolutely win a national championship there. Or you go to LSU, where they just fire a national championship coach. They are 500 in their last two years. And you have to play Alabama, Auburn, Florida, you know, and all these A&M, now Texas and Oklahoma every single year. I mean – just from a outside perspective, it never made sense for him to go from Oklahoma to LSU, the USC thing, just from a stepping back, it makes so much sense if he wanted to make a move. So
1: I don't know. No, I think you're right on with that as well, because I've always thought coaches viewed it differently too. It's like, look, there's some coaches like, I've you know, Neil wrote something the other week about how he talked to someone that had you know, Lane views himself as an SEC head coach. Not all of them think that way. He might actually be in the minority on that, where he can build a power with very little competition out there on the West coast. And, you know, I thought the USC thing might be teetering on the Tennessee, Nebraska. It's never happening again. But the reason I would settle on the fact that that's probably not true is they do have advantages that those two programs don't. And if there's a guy, I mean, if Lincoln Raleigh can't do it out there, no one is right. Like given sure. yeah. didn't get a fair shake out there because of the, you know, crippling recruiting sanctions. And he was such a polarizing figure at the time that guy can't do it. No one can. I think he'll do it. I, I actually think they're going to be quite good uh, probably for the you next. Know, yeah. Uh, it's next like,
0: it's like, do I think USC is a better job than LSU? No. Right. But USC is one of the jobs in the country that if you do it correctly, you can win a national championship there. So it's not like it's some, like, just three, four steps rungs below LSU. That's not the case at all. Um, I I think the decision for him, you know, I don't love it because I wanted him to go to LSU. Um, but I, I do understand, like, just it, taking away, like, the nonsense of he didn't want to coach the SEC with the best. Like, I get that, and the SEC is the best, and it's about to be even better. But to act like the USC job is, like, some, you know, tier three shit job is, is total nonsense.
1: So you mentioned the LSU side of this. You think they have their guy. It's interesting because the two people you would think at this point, to me, it's Aranda and uh, Mel Tucker have signed extensions. I don't know the language of the Dave Aranda deal. It was reported that he was in agreement to the long-term extension there. If it's not one of them, where are they going next and how far I'm curious. if you want to put an old Miss tie to it, This is a subjective thing that none of us, I don't think either one of us could answer, like, somewhat, like, actually accurately. How far down on the list would Kiffin be? I don't think he's on it. So who do you think the guy is?
0: Talking to some people, some in the know, some not in the know. I I don't think he's on it. Um, There was, like, a text kind of going out today amongst, like, my dad's friends and uh, some people that, like, they think Scott has his guy and that everyone's going to be happy with it. And... This is, like, the first time where I've ever, like, seen something from people and I've been like, okay, like, this makes a little bit of sense looking at what happened with this whole Lincoln-Riley thing. Is it just a bunch of bad news people being naive again and being like, we're going to trust Scott and we know he's got it? 100% possible. But that leads me to think that it's not Aranda. It's not Stoops. It's not Fickle. I think I know (laughs) – who I think people think it's going to be, which is a lot of thinks in a row. Really bad sentence there. Um, I don't really even know if I want to say it because I think some people actually do listen to what I say here that I'm, I'm on the text chain with. I think it might be a guy. Uh You know, I, I would say, I think it might be Brian Kelly. Ooh, I I, I think it might be. And okay, you know, so I was going they, t- they they to ask they want about Chris Peterson. They won't listen to this podcast, so it doesn't matter. Even though I told them I was going to say it anyway. Um, so yeah, on Chris Peterson, someone in the LSU stuff that works there that is absolutely one of maybe a very few people that might actually know what's going on. Even though I still don't think they do, uh, was talking about how like Chris Peterson is like a possibility. I I don't I never really believed it. I texted you that and I was like might be real. I think it actually could be. Someone that would know said
1: it. It was a fun um, thought. I was like, oh, that's kind of spicy.
0: But even before I just said Brian Kelly, like there's been people on Twitter that have been like, you know, like maybe Kelly's somebody who leaves during this thing. It could all be bullshit. Nobody knows. And I think that's been the whole reason why I think Woodward has got a guy that he thinks can be – that kind of hire because nobody has known what LSU is going to do the entire time. And they've been sitting there. Everyone thinks that they've just been like, you know, holding their tail between their legs with Nate Pierre leaving and this whole Riley thing and Mel Tucker and Jimbo. And, you know, when someone told me that name today, and I know it's kind of been thrown around here and there amongst people, but if we wake up tomorrow morning because Notre Dame has no more games left and that happens, not going to be that surprised.
1: And it makes sense. It no, makes go sense. ahead.
0: Yeah, no, just from uh, a. It kind Woodward, of makes sense. What Woodward does, the kind of you know established has won. Maybe wants a change of scenery. That's literally his past two guys, Jimbo and Peterson. Established one. Maybe it's time for a change of scenery. It, it, all those things together make it make a lot more sense.
1: And the other part of it, and this is probably a good transition, is anything the, you know, he's known for making the splash higher. The guy necessarily wouldn't be a splash, which isn't totally fair, would was right in their backyard and he just left. What do you think of Napier to Florida? That seemed like a look for, again, we were, did the whole like, there's a lot more to it, but like, what else do you want results wise beyond what Dan Moen did in a bigger picture? And to their credit, they seem to have a plan and they executed it very quickly. It seemed like Scott Strickland wanted Billy Napier and he got Billy Napier. What are your thoughts on this? Talk about a guy that played the game correctly. I don't know what the contract figure is, but man, he was really selective. Obviously that's a job that he covets and wanted because he had his pick of the litter for the last two and a half coaching cycles, basically. What do you think of the fit there? I, He seems, you know, um, uh, I'll, I'll hold off one thought at a time, but I read a really pro, uh, really in-depth profile that Brody Miller did for him. He seems very Nick Saban-ish process-oriented and recruits well, which I think was the biggest thing they were looking for. Yeah. From a check boxes standpoint, this seems to check all the boxes for Florida. Whether that works out, who the hell knows, but it seems like a great fit.
0: Um, I think it's a great hire. Uh, I've said it from the beginning. I-, I wished LSU had hired this guy. I think he's a stud. I think he's just an absolutely awesome coach. He's a great program manager. One of the best evaluators in the country, what he's done at ULL. I mean, they get guys that had no business being there and it's all by evaluation and by just being monster recruiters. Um, He's got to build a really good staff there, which I don't think will be an issue for him. I think it's a great fit. I think Florida did it right. And, you know, not everybody does it the same way they've, Got rid of Mullen, and they knew who they wanted. They got it done, and they got it done quickly. And they no nonsense, no bullshit. I think Ross Dellinger, he tweeted that he met with Napier on Tuesday at his house. The interview went so well that, like, they just shut it down there. Like that There was, was no
1: it. second candidate mentioned there.
0: No, ever, really ever. And um, I think he's going to do really, really good. And that's what's so funny and maybe not even fair, but whoever LSU hires will automatically be – attributed to Napier, it'll always go hand in hand because he was just an hour down the road. And for all extensive purposes, it seems like big LSU booster money, people like refuse to hire little brother or let that even come close to happening. Um, I think he's going to kick ass there. And if he ends up being the guy that kicks LSU's ass every year, it's going to be a weird, weird look. Um, I think he's going to be awesome there. He's He's really, really good. It would be pretty shocking if he faltered early there, in my opinion.
1: You brought you, you led me to where I was exactly going next. Another thing Brody tweeted out today as they kind of replugged that profile he wrote a while back was like, look, fairly or unfairly, these two hires are tied together now because Florida picked yeah. the guy out of LSU's backyard and whomever <laughs> LSU ends up with. Look, statistically speaking, I mean, I, that's probably not a good way to look at it. The odds of LSU, just on paper, we don't know how it's going to go. None of these things are sure things, which is kind of like the point in all of this that we got to last week. It's like no one actually knows anything when it comes to all this. But on paper, with the way that guy can recruit and the resources at his disposal, the odds of LSU getting someone as good or better, I won't say slim, but they better nail it because there's a lot more ways it could go wrong. And I think that will be fascinating. I wonder – and this is projecting way too far down the road and I don't want to like get you in trouble with like what you say. Cause I know, you know, like of Scott, Woodward, you know, like you like know, your family kind of neighbor runs in the same circles, but is that something that could potentially be job defining for him? If you think where it's like, you let this guy get out of her backyard and this next head coach is a flop. I don't think it'll be a flop. I think he ends up doing a good job, but could you see that eventually being kind of one of the defining moments of Scott Woodward's tenure at LSU? If Napier kills it at LSU falters a bit.
0: Yeah, well, first, let me deemphasize my relationship with Scott Woodward. I've met with him once, and <laughs> our parents and grandparents knew each other back in the day. We're not, like, that close by anything. So, let me first – I'm not that plugged in or connected with him whatsoever. But your statement, I think, just in a whole is true. I mean, he, has, he is an LSU guy, a Baton Rouge guy. This has been his defining moment his, of his – professional career has come into hiring the head coach at LSU literally from when he started here to Washington to A&M back here like this is his moment this is what he has led up his professional life to and fair or not yeah it will be compared to what Florida is doing it's the same cycle you play each other every year at least for now until that gets rearranged which it probably will and you know at the end of the day, it's a, it's results business. And if he hires a guy that doesn't provide the results that Napier does at Florida, his tenure as AD, at least in the the short term will be defined by this choice. Fair or not, but that's, that's part of it. And um, that's kind of why maybe I have so much, you know, naive blind faith in him because his track record just leads you to believe that. (laughs) um and why I don't think that they're going to go for a guy like Mark Stoops or Dave Aranda because that just wouldn't that just doesn't make sense to me or to anyone that's followed what he's done in his career um to let a guy that's as a proven winner like him an hour away go to your division rival and then not have a plan for that just doesn't doesn't add up and I think that he better get it right because if he doesn't, like you said, yeah, he w- it will be a kind of a defining moment for him and the positive or the negative.
1: There could potentially be some legendary Kirby Napier recruiting battles, right? Where you get stories twenty years down the road where like, holy shit, this got what weird.
0: I would say so. They're kind of different people. You know, Napier's very, you know, calm, collected. Kirby's like kind of out there you know, loud borderline obnoxious. Um, Yeah. They coach differently. I mean, Napier, like he never has like a smile or a frown on his face. It's just kind of just still the whole time. Whereas Kirby's out there, like literally in the backfield with his, with his safeties, like telling them what to do. You know, they're so different Um, and they're going to be recruiting the same guys. And, you know, Napier, I think his brother coaches in Georgia, and he's from Georgia originally. So, you know, He's going to go in there and, and cause some commotion. So it'll, it'll be fun to watch.
1: We had, there's so many more angles we could get to this, but that's probably a podcast for another day because we do eventually both have to sleep. Let's get to the fastest growing segment on American soil, just spreading like absolute wildfire. It is Soccer Corner. So while you were gone, absent in the midweek, my uh, old radio cohort, Brian Haydad, who's a Chelsea guy. Carried the torch. We got into about 20 minute conversation about soccer. And I think the way he ended it, this may have been after we were recording. He said, I'm disappointed. Weldon's not on. I wanted to call him a wanker. And I didn't understand that (laughs) Chelsea and man, you were playing this week. Oh yeah. He texts me as I'm driving back and goes, told you. And I said, what are you talking about? And then he said, you know, I think, man, U had gone up one nothing or something early on that game, you know, right after they sacked their manager or whatever. And I was like, oh, of course, uh, Chelsea, man, you, who could have forgotten to have that T vote ends in a one one draw. Big week in the Vermilion chairs. Chelsea is on top. Looks like Man City is uh, a point behind. What's uh, give me like the breakdown of the week that was Liverpool in third. What do we got going on here? What happened with Man United today? Um,
0: Man United had literally no business being in that game. Uh they were total shit for the entire game. Chelsea like gave them a goal basically. Um like a guy fumbled the ball in the back end, Jorginho and and you know, United had like a walk-in goal. Um I don't think they had a shot on target the entire game <laughs> except for that one goal. Uh, they were totally outclassed by Chelsea at every single level. Just they Chelsea just couldn't get one in there. Uh, ended up in a, in a one, one tie and um, United, this is, I've never even seen anything like this. So they hired a coach, but I think it's an interim coach, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't understand it. And even and this I don't is, they it.
1: this is in a sport where they don't do in That's what she told me last time. Like I, I get that, like obviously exceptions, but like, you, it's confusing because intern's not really a thing, correct?
0: Well, it's not a thing. And they hired this guy um, who used to coach uh, RB Leipzig. Uh, it's a, it's a, the, one of the Red Bull teams uh, around the world. They're in Germany. They're really, really good. And I think he did a great job there from what I looked up. Um, And he didn't coach his game. The, the Carrick, who was an assistant coach under the old coach, coached it. And... I don't know when this guy's getting to United. I don't know how long he's supposed to be there or if he's just the freaking, like, if he's just the guy. I truly have tried to figure out what the hell's going on there. His name's, uh, he's like rog, Rognik, Regnik. Yeah. yeah, so that shows you how much I know about it. Uh, Ralph Rognik. Um, from all accounts, uh, all the big coaches in the Premier League have said fantastic things about this guy uh supposedly he's a great coach really smart i don't know this team needs so much more than just a coach they they look just lifeless out there um so we'll see how that goes hopefully it goes well hopefully he is good enough to where um they don't have to go hire another coach or he's the intern for forever who the hell knows it's very confusing to me but um they played like shit ended up with a draw on the road hard to complain too much about that um but they qualified for the Champions League next round. So there's positives and negatives.
1: And so I'm looking at them. I'm crunching some numbers, getting deep in the analytics. Uh, Chelsea, uh, from what ESPN says, has allowed five goals this entire season. That seems quite good. Does defense win championships in the Premier League? How does that work? Because you have a team in Tottenham who, if my math is correct, has only scored 11, which would be tied for second worst in the Premier League. But they're seventh in the standings. They don't allow that many. Granted, they've allowed 17. What's what what's the offense to defense ratio here? 31 to 5 goal split seems quite good.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, you know, teams play differently. <clears throat> there's some teams that are like counter-attacking teams that, you know, quote unquote park the bus and then counter off a mistake. The and there's some teams like leads like Liverpool who kind of are high pressing aggressive up and down the field kind of team. So you'll see, they just, it's a different kind of strategy with everybody and Chelsea happens to just really be able to do all of it. They can play a defensive game and not let you score and win one zero, or they can absolutely blitzkrieg you and win four zero if they need to. They they are just by, they're by far the best team in the league this year. City, Um, Doesn't have a striker. They're still really good, but they struggle to score sometimes if it doesn't all go to plan. Um, And Liverpool is just hurt. Everybody's always hurt for them. Um, They are as fun as any team to watch by far, but they are definitely um, injury prone. Uh, And then Arsenal has made kind of a weird comeback. They won again this week. Uh, I don't think they're as talented as the top three,
1: but they're not out of it by any means. So they're, they're showing up a little bit. West Ham, fourth place. That seems a little bit of a surprise. It sounds like that. I believe I asked you about this last week. It sounds like they're here to stay.
0: Yeah, no, they're definitely here to stay. It's a little surprise you're in fourth, but they're talented enough to be in fourth. Um, it's not, you know, just some crazy conclusion that they're that high. Uh, they lost against City today in a tough game. I think it was like snowing. It's getting into uh, crazy weather soccer.
1: Love that. Uh, Do we get snow games on the pitch? How does that work?
0: Yeah. Well, shoot. Uh, The Tottenham game was postponed because it was snowing too much. And, then um, you know, I mean, in the World Cup qualifiers, Canada played Mexico. And it was like literally like the snowball Cowboys Packers back in the day. I mean, it was awesome. Uh, They play. They play if it's snowing. So you're getting into that kind of weather over there in England. So that's always brings out some fun games.
1: Does that change the flopping rule? Because I feel like if you're playing in negative two degrees, which I think it's that's an exaggeration, and you flop over something, I feel like that doesn't really play when it's you know, you're on the frozen tundra outside. How does that how does that work with flopping in the weather? Like, hey, this is a good question. <laughs> Are you a bitch if you wear sleeves? Because I know that's a big football thing. what's the what's the equivalent of that in soccer? Have you ever had some asshole go to shin guards? What's going on with that?
0: Um I don't know. I mean, those soccer, they wear gloves. Like, some of those players wear gloves. <laughs> so, I'm going to go with the official rule of sleeves are okay.
1: You're a bitch if you wear gloves. I like that. It's like the kid yeah. in junior golf tournaments used to do a push cart. It's like, get that shit out of here. Exactly.
0: I always think that, that's a fair statement,
1: you know. This has uh, been the fastest-growing segment on American Soil. We both need to sleep. Been long Sunday, but we powered through. I appreciate Tom as always. This was the end of the season finale, but I figured we'll talk some conference championship next week and then pop on through the bowl season as the Rebels uh, will presumably play on New Year's Eve or New Year's Day. Appreciate the time, dude, and we'll uh, hit this again one more time next week.
0: Yep, pray for no peach bowl.
1: (laughs) All right, that's our show. I appreciate you guys listening. As always, it's been a fun, fun football season. I've enjoyed these Sunday night shows, really all the podcasts, but the Sunday shows in particular, talking to football with Weldon, talking some uh, football overseas as well. I appreciate uh, you guys listening and making the show what it uh, what has become. I'm certainly grateful for that and that is uh, not lost to me. So I really appreciate you guys listening. you got, have a wonderful start to your week and we'll catch you again on Wednesday.